Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Redcast number 186. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Rachel Custer. She'll be here in a little bit. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publications since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry. I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet is greatly appreciated. Um, like I said, our guest today is Rachel Custer. Um, if you hang on after this, the first hour, uh, we also have Jennifer Jean returning with her new book, Votes. Um, and so we have a whole bunch of new books coming up. First, we're going to start with our Poets Respond Poet, as we always do. We had a little bit of a technical problem at the beginning, but we've reconnected, and I think it's going to work. Here is Christine Potter, well, Sunday's Poet. Let's, uh, let's talk to Christine. Hi, Christine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We've got spring here in New York. Actually, I wish we had spring here. I thought it was spring. I mean, I played some some softball even, and then uh, tonight or starting tomorrow morning, we're gonna get another two to three feet of snow. What? And so I know I oh, it's the worst. What? So everybody, everybody's preparing and, you know, getting all the milk and the shovels, you know, all the broken shovels have to be replaced, more salt for the walk and everything. Uh, so I, I wish spring would be here. But uh, anyway, it is the first day of spring, I believe. And uh, it's great to see you, um, a frequent contributor. Great to see you again. You had the Poets Respond poem. I think it's maybe your third or so time in Poets Respond. And um, uh, yeah, yeah and, and so tell us what this poem was about, first of all. Or how the poem came to be. It's about uh, a lot of things, I guess. Yeah, it's about a lot of things. Uh, It's, uh, I was writing initially about a time when I had to leave a bad marriage, when uh, it was like 40 years ago. I was a very young woman. I was in grad school. um, And I had had a really mean husband. (laughs) And uh, uh, it was was a nasty divorce. And... um, uh, it took me a while to get over it. And uh, in fact, I couldn't even write about it for a really long time. I was able to write about it probably like 20 years after it happened. I mean, you know, it was bad. Mm-hmm. And um, I sort of see what's going on in Ukraine as sort of a divorce from um, from Russia. Uh, they wanted out. They were being abused. Um, and, uh, you know, so the... Uh, you know, the Russians uh, launched uh, the meanest lawyer in the whole world hmm. on them, basically, and started wiping out cities. I mean, you know, metaphorically. Um, and, you know, I started writing this thing. There was there was this memory that I have, and I've written about it several times, where I actually never saw my ex-husband after I, I walked out on him. Never. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Never. Uh, we communicated on the phone a few times. I had to talk to him about taxes, um, but I never saw his face again. Hmm. Except there was this one thing that I describe in the poem, where there was a lake up at Fonstock uh, Park, which is uh, a bit north of here in New York State. And uh, we used to both like to go swimming swimming there, and I used to like to lie in the sun and read and write and stuff like that. And I had been up there, and I was leaving, and I was getting back into my car, and I felt someone looking at me. And it might have been him and it might not have been. It sure looked like him. He didn't talk to me. I didn't talk to him. I re- he had these John Lennon eyeglasses. And I remember recognizing the eyeglasses and kind of freaking out. Hmm. And I've, you know, I have notes about that. I've used that in other poems that I never finished. And, and I was writing about 
uh, I was I was doing a seven and seven with some friends of mine at the waters. And uh, I wrote this this week, this last week, actually. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was about Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting metaphor there. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read it? Then we'll talk a little bit more about the poem. Sure. Sure. OK. It's called Revenge. My problem is I don't want it. Even on my ex who flung the wicker lid of a laundry hamper after me, the night I said, now you've made it easy, and left. I never saw his face again, really, unless maybe once in the parking lot at a lake we both liked, his round silver glasses flashing August 3 p.m. sun 60 feet away. He squinted. I felt a familiar lurch in my stomach even before I looked back at him or someone else. I'm still not sure. Forty years ago, I never want revenge. And it wasn't easy. His lawyer was ferocious, served me papers over a dictionary, a few LP records, and a chili pot that Christmas Eve. Believe me, I couldn't even shoot Putin. I'd probably just insult him, get myself jailed for keeps. I feel bad for people. I'm a snowstorm like today's snowstorm. Wet, torn up newsprint, wind spiraled, worrying only our bamboo, which blew through its boundary pots last summer. And now it's all set to invade everything yeah great great several metaphors the extended metaphor there and then the metaphor at the end i think with our neil postman award last week i'm all thinking about metaphors all the time but but some great ones there and can you tell me about the form of the poem too it's something that i've noticed you do very often and it the line lengths are not just like about the same but they're like identical on i mean like so close to identical um you know, I, that I wonder, I didn't count the characters, but it seems like they're the same number of characters in each line. Is that something that you do, or is that is that uh, something? I don't count characters. No. Uh, I sort of, I make it so that it feels rhythmic to the eye reading it silently, mm-hmm. as well as it does when you read it out loud. Um, and I think that's why they got into those tight forms. I didn't know it was right like that. Yeah, hmm. Yeah, I remember the first yeah. poem we published, or, or what well, by your cat, we should say, yeah, <laughs> is, that uh, was a... is a sonnet. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, look up that, like that, that sonnet by Molly Cat Jones, um, which is very funny, Jones. personified sonnet. But, uh, but Christine, always a pleasure to have you on and, and talk to you. Uh, great to have this poem. Um, just great metaphors and a really interesting poem. Uh, thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Yep. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Yeah, that was Christine <laughs> Potter with uh, Revenge. That was Sunday's poem on Rattle.com. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Rachel Custer. As I mentioned, too, we're going to have Jennifer Jean on afterward, too. So we have an action-packed show. Sit tight, and I will be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, this week's guest, Rachel Custer, her newest book is Flatback Sally Country by Terrapin Books. It's a hard-hitting and harrowing and almost hypnotically beautiful look at middle America. Uh, Custer is also the author of The Temple Sheep Came. Um, she's a recipient of the 2019 Fellowship from the National Endowment of the Arts and a 2015 Mentorship from the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. Her poetry has appeared all over the place, including Rattle, uh, OSU, Body, the American Journal of Poetry, and many other places. Uh, she lives in Indiana, and uh, here she is 
Rachel Custer. Hey, Rachel, how you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's it's great to have you again. Um, you know, we don't usually have repeat guests, but I mean, the truth is, you're such a great poet, and we talk so much about sort of the. Um, you know, the, the history of that Trump poem and all that stuff. If anyone wants to yeah, hear that, yeah. you know, go back and talk about that, about cancel culture and the poetry world and all that. Right. And I wanted to have an episode, you know, featuring just really digging into your poetry because it's such great work. Um, oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And the new book is just one of the best books I've read in a long time. And so many people have written to me and said, you should have Rachel on again because this book is so great. Thanks. Um, so, that makes me feel good. Yeah. So I'm glad you could join us. Uh, why don't you start out with a poem so we can get a sense of Sure so it's a very thematic book, and we can really dive into it uh, with the first poem. So let's let's hear it. Yeah, I kind of felt like I was writing the same poem over and over again, but I kind of always feel that way. So uh, this is from Flatback Sally Country, my book with Terrapin Press, and it's called Boat. All day the sky is a closed fist. All day the maple leaves upraise their silver palms. All day the pregnant air, the dust and heat. Meet me out behind my mom's school bus as one 17-year-old to another, and I need a cigarette. I hate this place. I can't wait to get out of here. She kicks at the gravel, toes a pacifier half buried in the dirt. It's the kind of day. Meet me out behind the smoke shack, says one 18-year-old to another, as soon as we punch out for break. I hate this place. I can't wait to get out of here. It's the kind of day that hangs. Women move like figureheads, leaning always into the next thing, gentling through the silence like low boats. Just what do you think you're laughing at is the most desperate thing ever said by a woman whose belly hangs from under her shirt, whose children have never stopped touching her. It's the kind of day that crouches low behind your fear. A man slouches slow like a garbage barge. All day the water main waits beneath the house. Here is one church for the people who admit they are good, and one for the church, one church for the people who won't. Their crosses like identical sinking prows. All day the sky draws back its fist like a punch is coming, and the loud machines pound between cigarettes. Meet me outside, says one preacher to the other preacher. I hate this place. I can't wait to get out of here. Yeah, and that was one of the first poems, the second poem technically, in, in uh, Flatback Sally Country. That was Boat by Rachel yeah. Custer. Um, and so, Rachel, I mean, the, the poem, the books, um, you know, you build this character who is Flatback Sally, and, and the, the book is so mm-hmm. populated with all these other characters um, in, in the region where, where we don't get these kind of characters in literature very often, at least in poetry. Um, how did the, right. Tell us how this book came to be. Um, how did you end up writing sort of not about yourself, but about these characters that you were building? Well, I think after my last book, it was the last book was a lot about myself and I think it was this was a departure um and a very necessary departure that that just kind of happened um I started trying to write something about other people because I was kind of bored with myself and that kind of confessional mode um which which was fine and I'm proud of the book that came out of it but it just was it was a clear departure and that was what I was trying to do so I I kind of started writing these poems that were like named preacher or woman or, you know, where, and then trying to flesh out like a story around a kind of that person as an icon of what, you know, what that job is or that what it is to be a woman or a preacher and where I live. Um, and so Flatback Sally kind of just came in um, I don't know how she came to be honestly, maybe because I know her, just like I know most of the other people in the book, you know, I feel like 
they're people that I live around all the time. Um, they're things that really happen. And um, I, she just kind of came to be, I, I hate to, I feel like that's kind of a cop out on the question, but it really, when, when I'm writing in that mode, it kind of just flows, you know, it just comes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and what's the writing process like um, for, you, you mentioned entering a mode and it feels like the best yeah. poems do come from sort of entering a certain space and then, yeah. and, and you're almost like channeling them through you rather yes, than, than, I say that yeah. like a channel. Mm -hmm. I almost feel I'm very dissociative when I'm writing, when it's good, when I'm writing a good poem, I'm, I'm almost like Deb, my partner can tell because I just zone out, right? Like I don't, I'm not seeing what's in front of me and I'm just kind of typing. Um, and so she always knows when I'm writing a poem because I'm just zoned out. So it just, I do use that word, the channel, even though I don't like the, the spiritual implications of it necessarily, but just where it just flows kind of comes almost from somewhere external to you. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I do. I think it's, it's one of the best feelings about writing. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's, I think the only reason I write is because there's that yeah. feeling and it feels so, yeah. I mean, to me, it feels so joyous not to be yourself, not to be in your yeah. own body, yeah. not to have your yeah. own thoughts and to let things, it's the same thing I feel playing sports, which is like, yeah. you know, if, if it's something you've played a lot, like you don't think while you're on the field, you know, the right. ball is hit and you react. And, in a, and when you're writing a poem, it's the same thing. And I think it muscle comes memory. From, yeah, right? exactly. It's like muscle <laughs> memory. But but what muscles are we working is the fascinating thing with poetry. Have you thought about that, about where where that might be coming from or, or how it actually works that you get into that that mode of, of channeling or however you want to describe it? I have thought about it. And I think it's that's why it's so important to me that when I write the, the things that I write are true because I don't want to, um, I don't want to channel anything, you know, I don't want to bring in anything false, um, and say it as if it's the truth. And so that's what, that's the big thing for me is that it, if you're going to bring in something that you, that's not from you, you better kind of know where it's coming from, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why I try to, I really try to engage, with the truth because that's, I want to make sure I'm not channeling through anything that's, you know, not, <laughs> it worries me sometimes because it, it doesn't worry me. I shouldn't put it that strongly, but it's that feeling where you're almost not even there is at one, at so powerful. So at once in one, at one time it feels very good as you've said, to, and that's kind of why you're right. But also where's it coming from you know it's a concern yeah it is we'll i mean it. yeah I, I don't know i mean i've wondered it makes me wonder about things like the collective unconscious or, or i don't know yeah. how you know what kind of connections we have um yeah. yeah because it's like you bring in sometimes you'll say things that you didn't even know that you knew mm -hmm. were true and then you think wow that's really true that's a truism um and i think that's there may be something to that where you we're bringing some in some knowledge. And of course I, I'm a person of faith, so that's easy for me to make that leap, you know, mm -hmm. that there's knowledge outside of us. Yeah. So. And, and Robbie Nestor here, I, we usually get into comments later, but she would like to know uh, what constitutes truth for you, like literally or how, like, how do you know when something is true? Because that is, it's almost like we have a sense. And when I'm reading submissions, yeah. it feels like all I'm doing is listening for truth. And if I get some truth right. in a submission, then it's like the poem we publish because it's, it's, and, and there's like a, 
I don't know, like there's a, you know, goosebumps feeling, there's the a little tingling, right. there's like some kind of like, like really, like I think you could have somebody hooked up to one of those lie detector machines and right. just, you, you, you feel it kind of flow through you when it's true, but, but true in a deeper way too, which is always interesting to me. Like there's a truth beyond facts somehow. Yeah. Like facts are like temporarily true and truth is like true across time and space yeah. or something like that. Like but, truth with a capital T. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so how do you know, like what is truth for you and, and how, um, how for do you me, know when you find it? For me, there's, a, and I always remember, there's a Bible verse. Jesus claims I am the way, the truth and the life. Right. So to me, that is the ultimate truth is Jesus Christ in this world. And I think everybody knows by now that I'm a Christian. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time proselytizing, but that is, I always keep in my mind, you know, is this something that is, I believe to be true in the light of my faith. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, I'm sure that there are things that I've said in poems that people think that's just asinine. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so I get that too. I do think there is capital T truth, but I also think there is, there's a lot of room to move inside you know in a poem because people small t truth we don't always share those you know uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's where i get it yeah well let's hear hear the next poem okay let's see here the whole town knows that sally is a slut that mardi gras oh is that the right one or is that the wrong one um, I, I had property next but you can property. do whatever you want I'm sorry, let's do property okay. then. Okay, she had a man. They lived alone behind the turned back of the world. They lived alone around the edge of things, rooted their muffled way through long days. He called her baby and sometimes come here and sometimes you stupid bitch. His smile, a canyon filled with small bones. The cold world was her old man in the cold shade of his old grave whispering, darling, dance with the one that brung ya. Move in the sh- shoes that first rod your heels nothing fills silence like a dead father's voice or a single rifle crack she had a man she lived alone danced alone in the long shade of his fear they dug their way through life baby he told her and he bared his teeth at the air next to her eyes if i ever catch you with another man he smiled like her father when she caught him slipping his hand up another woman's sunday dress the theater of his teeth she had a man Baby, he said, and her need for him was a constant atonement of hands. His body, the earth, her life a tunneling. Yeah, that poem is a great example of um, just how great your poems are and how they stand out. And it's for Thank lines you. like like his smile, a canyon filled with small bones. And then later you come back to it, the theater of his teeth. Um, and and how do, how do lines like that come out? Is it through the revision process? Is it part of that channeling where it just does? Yeah, um, it just... I think it just does. I sometimes I'll come I'll come back and revise a little bit, but I I got to be honest, I don't do a lot of formal revising. Um it I'll usually I may do, work on some diction and where I'm breaking lines and stuff, but when it, when a poem when it when I'm writing well, when I'm writing where I, when I'm where I want to be, it kind of just falls out. You know what I mean? And so I do, I make some changes, but the basic lines are there. The thing that I think worries me more is that I'm writing the same thing over and over. I feel like I'm perseverating. You know what I mean? Uh I have a thing, like teeth. I have a thing with teeth. They keep showing up. I don't know why, but (laughs) (laughs) so, so those, 
that may be where some of the lines come. And sometimes I'll think ahead of time and a line will come and then I'll write the poem around it. You know what I mean? Or a, a line or an image. So mm -hmm. they, yeah, they kind of just come. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely, you know, most poets that we talked to on here, I don't relate to their process, but that's how exactly how it feels to me. And I have the yeah. same issue with certain images come up or certain just words that keep repeating. Yeah. And the, the manuscript that I have now, gra there's grass everywhere. I don't know why. Like grass <laughs> is some extended metaphor. Like there's grass again. <laughs> yeah, it just is. Like, And I just, I don't know why. Because I'm not, because when you're letting yourself go, I, I think it's your subconscious speaking mm -hmm. or your right brain or however you want to define it. And it has something that it wants to tell you. And, yeah. and it's trying really hard and struggling at telling you. And that's where the and art comes is from is that struggle. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so it's interesting, and I don't revise much either. So it's the same kind of thing where it's just you, either you get into the flow of a poem or you don't. And if you do, a poem comes out, and if you don't, nothing comes out, and you're mad at yeah. yourself. <laughs> and if you don't, you throw it away. It's trash. It's either that's kind of the way. I mean, if if it's not clicking, then I those are poems that don't usually see the light of day. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like I take a poem that I that it wasn't working and tr and revise it and change it. I have occasionally, but for the most part, those poems are just poems I'm writing on the way to writing a good poem, you know? So that's where I think the revision comes in is writing bad poems before you write, get to the poem that kind of just comes, you know what I mean? That's oh, yeah. that maybe the revision process is just your brain writing bad poem, bad poem, bad poem. Okay, here we go. This is what I wanted to say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to think of it too. And, um, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so how can you talk a little bit about, about the theme just in general? Like, why did you want to write a book with these characters? Um, you know, what is it about, about Midwestern sort of rural, um, poverty type areas yeah. that, that make you drawn to them and feel like they need to be, have a voice, I guess, is what you're doing. Well, I live here, you know, and, and I know the characters, um, though they are a little bit mythologized, you know, it's kind of bigger than larger than life, but a lot of people are. Um, and I don't necessarily feel like they're represented in the current, um, I don't know, the current, maybe the current poetics in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, I know there are people probably writing in the Midwest and writing, I just, but, it's kind of, it makes me think of, I always wanted to write the Midwest the way that Flannery O'Connor writes the South. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that, in that way of talking about faith and, but in this kind of mythologizing larger than life way, um, because that's what I experience here, you know, and poverty is just a reality of the area that I live in. Um, and so that, and unfortunately, that goes a lot of things go along with that. There's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of violence against intimate partners sometimes, which you'll see repeatedly in my book. You know, women are in fraught situations. Um, but I mostly want to write wanted to write about these people because I know them. They're real, and so I wanted to show them to other people. You mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Um Stephen, there's, there's so many questions here already that, that we could just, I don't even have to do an interview, which is convenient for me. <laughs> um, so, so Stephen Croft wants to know, are the characters mostly made up of composites or based on actual people you've known? Composites, I would say mostly. Um, there are, I take little things from people that I've known um, 
that may little details of people that I've actually known, but for the most part, they're kind of, like I said, I wanted to make them kind of mythologize. And so I kind of started out with like, I'd start out with a title like farmer. And then I wanted to do this kind of portrait of a farmer, but of a farmer who, you know, had this story. And so I wanted to tell his story, but it's not any specific farmer that I know, you know what I mean? But it could be, it could be, that's the reality. And that's why I wanted to tell the story because it, I know people who have been through these things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Mark Danowski mentions uh, the Spoon River anthology and, and Edgar Lee Masters, um, which is um, a, a similar type book. It was, I don't know how many years ago that is, like 80 years ago. Were you thinking about that at all too, that, that, that character composite thing that he was doing? I am unaware of that. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, well, you should check it out. Yeah, yeah. Spoon River Anthology. Mm -hmm. I'll check it out. Yeah, it's, it's, I think if I remember right, it's like people in his town. And so each poem is like the the oh, post awesome. the postal worker and the yeah, yeah. And, and and some people have names and some people don't remember it's been years and years since I read it I love that yeah love um that. yeah it's it's interesting uh, let's hear the poem I want to keep keep them rolling because they're so keep it good going. Okay. yeah let's see here I have I think Sally considers taking the train away is the one that I had yeah behind its whistle the train gathers her gaze skipping like a pebble toward any place else as if away was a place she might belong, as if away was a song. Sally's eyes desired a city full of men to pocket their cries like afterthoughts. In the city, no man loves you like a country man loves you with cold hands roughened by early work. What woman needs it anyway, that particular gentleness men save for mornings after fields. City, a proliferation of eyes unmet. City, a nakedness, strutting around like God knows who might see. And that was Sally Considers Taking the Train Away. Yeah. Uh, another poem from Flatback Sally. Uh, Sally being that main character that, uh, that's she composite. She wants to get out. Yeah, she definitely wants to get out. She wants Everybody wants to get out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's very much me. You know, there's a part of you when... I think there's a part of people who live in any place that feel like, God, I want to be somewhere else. And yet this is home you know what i mean and mm -hmm. so there's i think there's that tension in the book where it's i want everybody wants to get out and no one leaves so. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so let's see and robbie nestor asked too here another robbie nestor question she's got a good one today yeah yeah thanks for joining us too robbie i haven't seen you in a while um she says, is there something you want to say or do you find out what in writing the poems is that one of the things do you think you're seeking truth and, and seeking meaning or do you do you, is there something pre you know pre, that you want to say to start with i think i'm seeking i think i'm seeking truth and maybe resolution um yes meaning definitely uh but it does kind of tell me as i write it or you know what i mean and so i don't um I don't start out, if I start out with something I want to say, I usually write a really bad poem. Um, so what I usually start, if I start out with an image or a thought, like a line sometimes or a, or sound, that's another thing I did with this book was kind of a lot of the, a little bit more of the rhyming and some of the um, work with form even. If I start out with that stuff, I tend to write away from what I want to say didactically and the didactic stuff just doesn't work for me if i start out wanting to 
say make a point i end up with crap <laughs> yeah um well let's uh let's do another poem okay okay this one is called song a woman alone in the boat of a man a woman a moan in the throat of a man brief stone afloat in the moat of a man secret sewn into the coat of a man note a man how he struts down the road of a girl how his rough voice cuts the ode of a girl what she owed not the world he's made of her fear not the shade of him here where she's paid with her tears in the game so she thinks as she drinks one more beer in the game yes but think who will pay for the child make a way for the child how she prays for that child so wild the dirt on her knees is a cry for a life where to live will mean more than to die. Goodbye is the bone in the throat of her now, a huge stone sinking the boat of her now. While she stands in the bow, child in hand, singing the last mournful note of her now. Yeah, and there's another poem, uh, a song from Flatback Sally. And that poem has a boat image, too. And I was thinking <laughs> while reading the book about the way, you know, that sense of escape. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if maybe the image of the boat is that, you know, both Noah's Ark is a way to survive yeah. this, you know, yeah. the rising waters of poverty and what's, you know, what life is. Catastrophe, yeah. Yeah, and then, and, and you know, and will the boat come and, and how to make the boat? And, and those are the kind of questions that come up. Is that something that you consciously do? Is there anything that you consciously do or is it all just flow? No, I think there are conscious things that I do. I just think that I tend to do the conscious things repetitively. So it's like like you'll see the same, and this book really is kind of looking at something from different angles you know what i mean and so um i do consciously i did consciously work with ways of escape in this book and because i think and one of the interesting things about that is that i wrote it mostly when i had just moved back to the place where i grew up and so maybe that was kind of where all those modes of escape were coming in um because there's a very, there's tension there, you know, for me. And I think that's interesting with the Noah's Ark. That's funny. I would have never thought of that. Hmm. But you think of it like salvation kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so what do you think the, the future holds for, for the Midwest? And, and then, and I wonder too, especially recently with AI coming out, sort of taking all the, yeah. so many more yeah. jobs in the same way that, I think it's going to be something similar to when all the industrial jobs left. Yeah. And so yeah. the rest of the world, you know, the cities are sort of facing what the rural areas that, that relied on factories face now because all those professional yeah. jobs, so many of them are not going to be needed anymore yeah. uh, with AI writing copy and proofreading and, and, yeah. and doing so many things, lawyers and, and, you know, doctors and all sorts of jobs are going to be taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? I mean, I think the... I don't know. One of the things I think that we need a, a reason, we need a, a why to live, you know? And, and yeah. I always think about the way in, in this country, anyway, we say like, um, you know, what do you do? And that you, that means what do you, what work do you do? Yeah. You know? And there's a way that's it's so embedded in our psyche because our, our sense of worth is work. And it's, I think those yeah. words are probably related etymologically. And so, so what do you do to find meaning when that meaning has been taken away is yeah. a question that's going to be facing not just the rural parts of the country, but, but everywhere else. Right. So, so right. what do you think, how do you think we're going to deal with that? And, and how do you think we can make a sort of sense of meaning out of the life that we have left? That, wow, that's a deep question <laughs> because, I mean, here work is worth, you know what I mean? And so, and I think you find that theme throughout the book. It's work is 
what you do and who you are and how you uh, it's almost an ethical you know like a hard for someone to be hard working and that to be one of the first things you say about them is an eth a commentary on their ethics you know um we're very much in the protestant ethic <laughs> bible belt here but i think there there has to be to find meaning i think a lot of people are looking at kind of a decentralization of meaning, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So there's almost, there's kind of this movement to be closer to the land maybe, and, you know, and homesteading and doing all these kind of things that are raising animals and hunting and th things that people here have always done. Um, but I think that's where some people find meaning here is in a connection to the now you know what mm -hmm. i mean to the moment um and to the outside but it's it's difficult it's it's just kind of like addiction to your devices it's difficult to figure out how to work with those things and alongside those things i hope that we'll find a way mm -hmm. um but for now it's kind of we're just kind of learning to navigate you know yeah it's interesting you know talking about the now i mean there you know i come from more of a buddhist perspective myself but but yeah. the the focusing on the moment and appreciating that is in a way that's what poetry is all about it's sort of like a yeah. prayer to the now you know to noticing yeah. your life as you pass through it and the landscape as you pass through it and the people that you see as you yeah. pass through it was that the thing that you that drew you to poetry in the first place? What was it that made you become a poet? And, and why do you think poetry is the source of meaning for you, which it clearly is, you know? Yeah, I think, honestly, it, I got a lot of, I got a lot of encouragement to be a poet because I was fairly good at writing like rhyming poems you know what I mean when I was small when I was younger mm -hmm. um and so a lot of people would read my poems and say you know they're good whatever and so that felt good um but I always wrote before I ever even before anybody ever read it you know I always wrote to find out what I thought and what I needed from the moment if you're and, and to escape the moment in some ways and so it's interesting because I think there's a tension between poetry as attention to the moment and also escape from, you mm -hmm. know? And so it's that, I guess I'm going over that same tension that's in the book. Um, but I think, I think that mostly I found meaning in it because I am good at it. I like doing it, you know? And so that's what I feel like it's my calling to do. And so I do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing I was going to bring up, like a calling, um, I know, you know, your faith is a very big part of your life, too, yeah, um, and, sure. and which which I appreciate a lot because there's so few poets that are very vocal about that. And yeah. so it's it's interesting just, you know, your perspective on that is somewhat unusual. We had Chris Anderson on, um, the Catholic deacon, a couple, about a year ago. Um, and, and But there are very few people who are that open, openly spiritual yeah. and that openly religious. Um, and, yeah. and, and how much of that plays into your poetry? Is that something that you feel like called to do in that religious way? Yes, I think, um, and especially because people, I think people misconstrue what religious slash spiritual poetry is or can be, um, because a lot of people, I think, feel like, well, if it's religious or spiritual, it's going to be that, you know, smarmy, like, kind of hallmark verse. And I, you know, I think there are religious poets working who are, and I've met more since I've, you know, kind of 
been getting to know people um, who are writing about the tough stuff, you know, who are wrestling with God and wrestling with the, the, the real truth of religion and the difficulty in life and how, you know, that stuff, it's not an easy answer by any means. And so that to me, it is, it's absolutely a calling. And I think a calling to be the person who talks openly about God and about Jesus. And, you know, that this is a, this is something that I found that's true, Mm -hmm. you know, big T truth, objective truth. And so to write, well about it is important to me yeah it's interesting you mentioned that word wrestling because i think if i remember right, i think um the word um israelite or israeli means to wrestle with god he who wrestles with god yeah yeah. exactly and i I remember getting that feeling i don't know how much we talked about this with the two interviews we did with chris anderson but but he it's so clear that he's wrestling even as a deacon you know and what that's what makes this poetry so compelling is that he you know, acknowledges and dives into his own, you know, the, the difficulty he has at, at maintaining right. faith and, and the, the, right. the, the problems with the world that, that make you sort of question how God could do this yeah. and, and though all yeah. those big things and what our place is and how, you know, how much suffering is yeah. part of a plan and how could that be the plan, you know? Yeah. And so... How do you believe with that? How do you do it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what What other poets? I mean, I think um, Mark Jarman is another great one with Unholy Sonnets. Um, what other poet um, do you... You know, what other poets do you recommend that, that do that kind of wrestling with oh faith? Oh my gosh, you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> um, you know, one thing is Jeff Harden does a lot of oh, wrestling, yeah. mm-hmm. I think, with... And he does a lot. He writes a lot. He writes, like, daily and puts it on the on his uh website and i like to read his stuff um he's one that i would say really wrestles and i really like that um let me think here uh you would do that <laughs> i can't think of anybody i'm going i'm going blank <laughs> well that's all right well uh you know we have a few that we've listed we can point to we did have a poets of faith issue and um i know and as soon as i get off of here i'm probably going to think of like five of them but i <laughs> I have run into one thing that I really enjoy about writing about God is that people who like poetry will then talk to me about God and the, the God, the part that I've put into the poems about God. And even if they're not, even if they're not a Christian or if they're a full, I mean, I've had atheists who have told me, you know, things and talk to me about it. And I, I like that. I like that dialogue and i think that that's so important to me as to why i put god into my work because then people will come and will talk about it who you wouldn't necessarily think because they're they're coming at god from poetry rather than the other way around you know and i think that's so cool to me like that's that's the calling piece of it is Mm -hmm. you know someone that you may not even have connected with that is like, wow, hey, this is cool. I like the poems, even if I'm not really a believer, you know, and then we talk and we connect and I really like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel that way. So so Robbie Nestor says Hopkins and Herbert are two great, great older examples. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Um, yeah. I was thinking living poets, like I'm, I'm just drawing a blank. Yeah, there's not that many. I think we talked about before, if I remember right, on the last episode, about um, finding places to publish that are more yeah. religious. Have you have you come across that and getting actual, you know, sort of our kind of poetry into more religious settings? There's a huge community 
that doesn't have much, you know, contemporary poetry anyway. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I know there are places that publish, I guess it's hard for me to think of my poetry as religious poetry. Yeah. Um, because I still am pretty rooted in the secular world i think or you know in the i i still kind of and i have a tendency to kind of get a little rough with my language so um but there i know that there are places that do publish like christian verse um i i haven't had trouble finding for the most part finding for these poems in flatback sally find finding places to publish mm -hmm. the poems i have had difficulty some difficulty finding are poems that are more overtly christian or about god you know what i mean and so that can be a struggle sometimes mm -hmm. but right we're, we're living and you've noticed this i think that anybody can push out a poem to the general audience that most lit mags have you know what i mean through substack or on twitter or wherever you want we have a glut of abilities to to publish so i'm not too worried about that mm -hmm. um it works out. Yeah. <laughs> it works out. Uh, well, let's hear the next poem. I think uh, Birthright was next. I always have rattle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. Birthright. <laughs> Fear will make a man lie about how he loved you, and Sally knows just how to scare a man. Beneath her summer clothes, her belly swells. A song, sudden as dark, overtakes the day. Mercy wells up inside her like the flood a girl becomes in the basement of a cruel man's need. Fear will make a woman dream of another country, the motherland a woman can become. Sally dreams vast fields of desperate eyes. Hope, a mother will never be left alone with a dangerous dream. Mercy, a daughter born to cut glances from men. And that was Birthright from Flatback Sally, um, the newest book from Rachel Custer. Um, let's see, we had a whole bunch of questions. Let me get to a few more of them. Um cool. So, so how is yours? This is Dick Westheimer. He asks, "How is your vocation in the old sense as a poet meant um, um, to your neighbors and your community? Like, is it is it it's something that that people around you recognize, or is it something no. that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't know for the most part mm -hmm. um, that I am a poet, and I am generally okay with that, <laughs> with that happening. Um, although I do have, I did tell my book club and my family about this. So I think there are some people watching that know me around here. Um, but in general, it's not one of those things I find that comes up in conversation real often. <laughs> I mean, people, it's funny because when we talk about what you do, you know what I mean? Like people will say, I work at here, I work here. And I, <laughs> I guess I, I may say I'm a poet, but I, that it seems almost more like an avocation to me. So <laughs> they just don't know in general. Mm -hmm. I've thought about kind of going to the local coffee shop and asking if they want to carry my books or something, but it's, it's an odd disconnect. You know, there's like my people here that I live around and, and then there are all these poets online. <laughs> so sometimes my friends here will say like, those poets are crazy. The poets are on your Facebook. <laughs> So they see the stuff, but there's kind of a disconnect. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea or thoughts about how to bridge that disconnect? I mean, the, the whole point of Rattle is that we think that everybody should be reading and writing poems because I think it's a worthwhile yeah. spiritual thing, you know, to, to, to have that kind of 
um, prayer, whether or not you're, you know, it's a kind of prayer to write a poem yeah. and, and, and it's to hear someone's prayer to read a poem. And, and those are such important things, whether you're a person of faith or not, um, to have yeah. in your life. And there's very few avenues and increasing, you know, decreasingly, you know, fewer and fewer. Um, and so I think poetry is so important, especially as we move forward into the, the future we were talking about, where the, yeah. you know, the problems of the, the rural Midwest and other, you know, Rust Belt type areas like my hometown yeah. of Rochester with Kodak leaving. Um, you know, that's all coming for, for Los Angeles, you know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so we're all going to have to deal with this and, and deal with it in a way that's not, you know, um, you know, having, you know, becoming addicted to meth and fentanyl. Right. Right. Um, and so <laughs> there's a problem or drinking yourself to blackout every night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there has to be a solution, you know, if we're going to save our humanity from our own sort of invention. And I think you're maybe just more, uh, of an optimist than I am. Yeah. I, I'm a little bit critical of, I, I want, I mean, I want to believe that poetry makes that kind of difference in people's lives because obviously why would I write it if I didn't think that it had some kind of power? I, but I, I guess I could do better at trying to spread the word, you know, about poetry. I just, I kind of feel like here's, I think here's this hesitation for me. I, almost don't say anything on social media anymore unless it's directly related to like my book and stuff like that. And, um, and that's because I, when I read a book, I don't want to see the stupid opinion the author has about politics. You know what I mean? Because to me, the writing is what matters. And so when that invades into my life, when I see like their stupid take hot take on Twitter, then when then it invades the writing for me hmm. and and it can it can make me pull me out of the writing and i really just want to lose myself in the writing and so i think that's where my hesitation to let it kind of infiltrate my here life has been because i feel like people know me already in a way and hear my stupid hot takes and see me see me struggling through life in my sweatpants and I'm not sure how, I guess I'm, maybe I'm just kind of afraid. I'm not sure how that would be, how it would be received, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, do you, so do you, you feel like the death of the author, that type perspective that we should, you know, not just, just try not to know much about the private life? I want and it. Yeah. Yes. I want everybody to just shut up. Um, <laughs> I really, I think I want, I don't don't want to read and and because i because i feel that way as a reader i feel that i try to shut up as a writer because of course that hasn't always been my mo we know that (laughs) and so people have ideas of me and i hate i hate 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 that people there are people who will never experience my poetry or even want to because of some stupid off-the-cuff thing i said that had no bearing on anything you know what i mean like my opinion on politics matters not at all to anything and so i hate that 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 has impacted people's enjoyment of my work and so that's why where i come from on that i think is just compartmentalization from nervousness you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting because i used to wonder you know there was that sort of in polite conversation you don't talk about politics or money that was used to you know 40 or 30 years ago that was sort of just a standard You know, at the dinner table with friends or with, you know, you just don't talk about those things. Or religion, really. Or yeah. religion, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, 
ultimately those are those are all things that you're not going to change anybody's opinion or perspective on by talking about it because everything's so entrenched yeah exactly i used to think that that was a ridiculous thing but but now that we talk about it so openly and it's you know Mm -hmm. our you know badges on social media and things um you know we see that it's not helping to talk about it as we get more and more divisive and and you know every each side of the aisle is um you know character caricaturizing and and yes. you know, seeing the worst in the other side constantly, and um, and so maybe it is true that we need to sort of pull back and and start having I don't know that yeah. the the sloganeering of of politics anyway yes. sort of take more of a back and seat. It's the opposite of what I think good poetry should do, and so that's why I think I look at it almost if if good poetry is good, then this discourse is evil. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about like the, the politics and the the um, the way that it divides and dehumanizes. And that's the big thing for me is the dehumanization. Um, one thing, and I think I've talked about that before, but what I just truly believe that poetry must radically humanize um, to be any, to be of any worth. Uh, and talking about this stuff on Twitter or on Facebook, it doesn't, it, it's almost by its nature dehumanizing. And so that's where I, I almost feel like it's, and antithetical to good poetry so that's mm-hmm. i don't know yeah. that's probably why i haven't gone out to my neighbors like here's my new book you know because <laughs> i'm nervous yeah well i think um you know i have a twitter thread one of the only political twitter threads i don't know if it, it comes across as political but it's that, that poetry is the opposite of propaganda and yes. I think it's technically the opposite yes. because because poetry is is the the searching for truth and meaning yes. and and so it's going in one direction, propaganda is going in the other, not caring about truth um but yes. just spreading a message yeah and you know as um um you know, you know propaganda the almighty can be, narrative yeah, yeah, propaganda can be good or bad um you know there's uses for it. Um, but it's not the same thing as seeking and trying to understand. It's the exact opposite right. of that. Right. And so I think there's a there's a way that that you know, and, and which makes political poems really interesting. And of course, you're famous for one political poem, but there are a few. Yeah. And it, but the thing is, it's not even a political poem. Um, you know, it's right. a poem about human beings. It's a poem not unlike the other poems in Flatback Sally, honestly, mm-hmm. because it it looks at someone who has been made into a caricature. And it tries to humanize. And I think that's that's what I did. That's what I do, I guess. That's what I did in Flatback Sally. There, There's a poem in there about the um, burying the KKK, the Grand Master of the KKK, um, near my house, right? And there actually was a Grand Master of the KKK who lived fairly near my house. Um, I don't know that he got buried <laughs> on a hill somewhere. So that might have been... I might have made that up. But... Um, I've had some flack from that one for not out, out, outright deriding or decrying what he, you know, what he stood for and what he did. And I hope that enough comes through in my poems that it will show, even when I humanize, I don't endorse, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. I th- I don't know. That's just, that's just my thought is you have to humanize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, if I mean, I think poetry poems are empathy machines that make us mm-hmm. understand each other, and understanding each other is the way that we become better as a society. And um, and so you know, it's an important thing to do. And of course, that poem you're mentioning is in Rattle. Um, so if there's any controversial poem, yeah. it's probably in Rattle. Um, right. 
And so you can find that. Um, I can't remember the exact title, but just look up on Rachel Custer and Rattle. You'll come across that one. Um, so um, let me see. There was I a, think uh, oh, it was the Grand Dragon of the KKK is buried near my house. Yeah. And it's actually in the book. Do, do you want to read that since we talked about it? Yeah. It's a good example of um, really the the way that, that – you know, just spreading. I guess another thing is, is too, is what poetry does. The propaganda doesn't is add nuance, whereas propaganda subtracts nuance. Yeah. You know, and so, right, and and so they're just moving in the exact opposite directions. And then this is an example. Like, if you wanted to say, you know, the KKK is awful, like who cares? Because obviously, but yeah, if you obviously, like, yeah, it's so it's so obvious and so simple to say that that the other way is the way you have to go to get to get to anything true. You know what I mean? Because that's obviously a truism that it's awful. You know what I mean? But what under, lies underneath that and around it? And that's, that's interests me. So let's go. Let's Do you know what this. page that's on? I'm trying to find it. Uh, it's on 70. Okay. The grand dragon of the KKK is buried near my house. They let him down four local boys with faces valleyed by years and eyes that skitch away sideways like outdoor dogs. He'd never miss a piece of blueberry pie, says the one, agreement hanging between them like long years, like all the black mornings through which they'd staggered home, drunk as a man could get if he drank from overtime to closing time. They are men in various stages of falling down. They lower him home, and it's a good thing he died young, thinks at least one. My strength ain't what it once was. I don't know how much longer I'll hold up. He was something, says the guy whose shoulder hurts worst. Remember the summer we was all on TV? And he lifts his eyes upward toward memory, himself at 19, his muscles coiled ready inside his skin. He really was a man to be reckoned with. Nobody says nothing, but they're all agreeing, rubbing the young back into their joints, his name like a balm that burns away the years. And again, as if somebody had disagreed, his name means something here. Everybody knowed him for somebody. And they lift their eyes again to bodies before pain, to the value of a name, here where every grave is a pauper's grave, off this nowhere road where every car is a car from here. Yeah, and, and that was uh, the Grand Dragon of the KKK is buried near my house. There, there was a documentary that I watched a few years ago about, um, it was a journalist, and I think she was a Muslim, a British um, Muslim woman journalist embedded and sort of befriended people in a white supremacist group. And it was fascinating to wow. me uh, because they all sort of just like fell in love with her as a human being, you know? Yeah. And yeah. You, you'd think that they would be like, you know, so racist and awful. And it was it just right. became apparent in her, at least in the way they presented it in this documentary that she made. Um, there were people who just were had such a crisis of meaning and, and, and like right. a, a purpose right. in life that they had clung on to this ridiculous belief system that made right. them feel a little bit of meaning and some sense of like doing something. And that right. all they had to do was see how ridiculous it was for a second. And they wanted to be your best friend. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah. and there's that other guy who, um, I can't remember his name too, the, the, the black man who uh, befriends people in the KKK. And, yeah. you know, and he has a whole closet full of their robes where just by becoming, you know, humanizing them enough to, yeah. to show his humanity too breaks that whole cycle. And so there's yeah. a way that poems, that's something that poems can do as well. Is I mean, that's why empathy it's machines the only thing are that important. Can break that yeah. cycle. Mm-hmm. You can't break a dehumanizing cycle in somebody else by dehumanizing them. That is not ever going to work. And I, I think that the, 
the main a crisis for of meaning is a really good way to say it you know people are just searching to belong to something some truth mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I hate to say it, you know, as an atheist or a, an agnostic, but but it, it goes back to the yeah, Nietzsche. Yeah, you're not a great atheist. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not very good at it. But uh, but you know, God is dead, and if you read Nietzsche, you know, the the whole all of his writing was about what was going to happen to us once that once we take out God and we're sort of lost at sea, cling to whatever like yeah. scrap of floating wood we can find in the debris, yeah. um, and and that's kind of you know what we're facing is, is like we had meetings sort of packaged and given to us. And now um, most of us for the most part are forced to um, find meaning for ourselves, which is something that, that most people aren't capable of, frankly. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, some it's of us almost like that was a necessary thing for us because, and almost like maybe true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I think it was a necessary thing, you know, it's, it's something that we need as people. Yeah, I mean, it definitely makes me wonder. I mean, we, there are, you know, evolutionary reasons and things that you could explain for why, but but you can see what's happened since. Um, and, yeah. you know... Um, it's I mean, not going great. No. I mean, there were problems before, of course, too. It's not like uh, things sure. ever were great. And in a lot of ways, sure. they're better, but they're better because of technology, not because of our spirit yeah. or something, you know? We're not better people. Yeah, yeah. I think that's safe to say. Um Let's see. I want to. There were a bunch of um. There were a bunch of questions. And I got and there's so many comments too. Throw one at me. Yeah. Make so comments too. We want to talk more about but poetry in general too. And as I'm looking for, for some of the more questions and and all the other mentions, I noticed there's a lot of um formal elements slip in your poems and they feel like almost yeah. accidental. Like there are a lot of like there's some sonnets and everything is like a like it's heroic couplets but they're slant rhymed. You don't notice yeah. and, unless you like wait a minute is that oh that is a sonnet. Um, and how how much of that goes into your poems? Is it pre-planned? Do you think about what a form, or does it just accidentally come out that way? Because you talk about the poems being so spontaneous, like they're being yeah. channeled. Do they end up channeled in a form? There are a few that um, I wrote that were meant to be um, sonnets or, or sonnet-like. <laughs> I'm not I'm not really sure I fully understand all the elements that make a sonnet, so I just write. 14 lines and this one rhymes and this one so i have there were a few in there that i tried to do that with um but for the most part especially with when you hear for the most part it's just music like i just kind of um think i just think okay this needs to have a hard rhyme here and this needs you know what i mean so it kind of just comes out that way like uh like song the poem that i read song I thought, okay, I wrote this first line and then I thought, what if I could find something to rhyme with every, you know, and it was kind of just playful. Um, and then it, that's just what it ended up being. But a lot of the, there, there's a lot of rhyme and um, internal kind of sound with this book. Yeah. Do you, to, to me, I feel like the, the sound in the first couple lines almost like determines the, the rest of the poem. It's almost yeah. like, like if a in the same way like a maybe like a rock tumbling down the mountain the first yes. push is what like sends it off in a certain direction or, that's or well said you know? that's yeah. a perfect metaphor um yeah so like the beginning yeah, that's true the first po- the first liner of the first couple of lines will determine a lot of times the diction i use or the rhyme scheme you know how things kind of fall out that way i love that image of the rock tumbling down the mountain because that's often how it feels like but it dictates 
the fact that it dictates it is kind of a structure that holds me while I write. So I appreciate it. You know, I have to. Mm -hmm. so. um, well, let's hear another poem. Let's get in. I think we have time for two more, probably. Oh, we got. Okay. Lines written between shifts. Smoke hangs like questions in the break shack's air. Do you want to die early? Don't you feel that fear pressing you like a machine? Aren't you wasting your life with work? The skinny girl says, I'm fasting again. What did you bring for lunch today? You wish you could tell her the secret to joy. Is loving what you are more than what you do? Is knowing when you leave here, you are still you? In the parked cars, line workers hit their pipes. One will die from the pills he takes to sleep. Nobody will remember his given name. The line will keep running. The press will slam over and over all day. You'll breathe the dirt. Break is for questions that can't be asked at work. Yeah, another great poem, Lines Between Shifts. Um, how much, um, you know, you mentioned these are the people around you, but but how much, you know, are you out in the community? Have you been to, to places like this? And do you take, do you take like mental notes? Um, how is the how does the composite nature of the characters in these poems work? I think you know. Well, one thing, one place that I work, I worked for a while in a liquor store mm -hmm. um, as a clerk, and it was like the best poem fodder ever because I saw and I um, I saw people every day and talked to them about their factory jobs and you know. But part of the thing, like hitting the pipes in between, like at lunch, there really is. A, an epidemic here where people are using drugs to work their bodies past the point that they're able to work you know what i mean and so so there are things that are going on here that i don't necessarily know a person that the specific person although i do know specific people but you know i don't always know the specific person or situation that that happened but i know that it is happening if that makes sense mm -hmm. um i have obviously been to factories i've been you know to churches country churches and so it's i've lived here off and on all my life um and so i kind of i kind of just make it up as i go along but take it from the news you know what i mean the headlines of the day and and you know in a town this size nobody gets away with anything uh -huh. like that like the Tommy Two Fingers poem, there actually is a guy named Tommy Two Fingers in my in my town or nickname that I'm not sure I should have said that because I don't know that he likes that nickname. But um and he and he did lose it in a factory accident. Mm -hmm. You know, so there those are peppered throughout kind of. Yeah. The dogs out. Come here. Um so so Robbie Nestor or let's see, where was I going? Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about too, and I'm trying to find, I think someone mentioned the comment, but that wasn't it. Um, you, the, the, your poems take big leaps too. Um, yeah. There's sort of a lot of, of transitions and cuts and a lot of movement. And, and sometimes the poem is, you know, a lot of times in the critique of the week that we do on Friday, um, we say like, this poem is great. Like they're great descriptions, but it didn't go anywhere. Like there's no sense of like, you know, something changing to something else, like some turn. Right. Um, and sometimes your poems have multiple turns and it feels yeah. like very natural to you the way that you do it, the you, yeah. way you leap from one thought to another and then sometimes come back and sometimes not. There's a very free way that you move about in poems. Is yeah. there any, any, any way that you've cultivated that or anything conscious involved or, or how do you come up with, with those leaps? Um, 
I think you just need to be open to the poem saying something that you're not trying to say, like you're not starting to try to say, you know what I mean? Um, so like if you're, if I write a first line, I need to not know what I want the third line to be. You know what I mean? I need to not know where I'm going or what I want to say with the poem. And I need to let it kind of lead and be willing to just follow that thread mm -hmm. because I think that, and that's what I was saying when I, when I start out with saying something I want to say, it doesn't do that. It doesn't work as well. I end up just with a poem that, like you said, doesn't go anywhere. And so that's where I think you just, I think the openness is what helps me with it. Yeah. And, and how do you know, to just another question, I've given up looking back at the comments, but um, <laughs> another question, so I can't say who asked, was um, um, how you know a poem is done. How you know that it's one for the for the keeper, for the book, for publication, and not for the trash bin, like you said before. Um, I think that oh, that's always that can go back and forth because sometimes I've had poems where I just was like, it's meh, you know, it's just okay, and then people really respond to it. Um, I can't always, I'm not always the best judge of how quote unquote good a poem is. I usually, I can tell when they're done just because I'm done with them. Um, but sometimes that's where the editorial vo voice and I comes in because I can't always tell what needs to go in a book and what, you know, for instance, and what doesn't, mm -hmm. um, I can tell poems that I think are done or I think are good, but, um, for the most part, I can't always predict how people, how the odd people are going to respond to them. Yeah. I like that. Uh -huh. I like it. Yeah. Because it, it's nice to have a surprise where you think, eh, this poem's maybe just okay. Or, you know, whatever. I'm not sure people will really respond to it. And then they really do. And that's really nice to see, Hey, this, you know, there's some other thing going on in this poem that people really caught on to, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Is there a way, do you have people that read your poems early to, to sort of get feedback on that? Or are you sort of... I, okay, all... I do occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I, like I'll send them to, a, there are a few people I send them to that might make some, give me some feedback. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, okay. Two more questions and then we'll do one last sure. poem. So okay. Attractive Fahey, who gets to be here live, um, which is very, I think it's pretty late there. Says, I love listening to you, Rachel, and very intriguing interview. Um, Thank you. I'm wondering how you get into a state of openness. I try, but the head infiltrates. And I think that is, I mean, that's why I always say I think the best book on writing is Zen and the Art of Archery, because it's all about getting your head out of the way. Okay. But, but how do you get your head out of the way? This is another afraid of it's a cop-out answer, because what, I'll be kind of just sitting around, and all of a sudden I'll say, I need to write a poem. And then... I open up the thing and it, it kind of just flows. I do think though that you can you can work on doing that um, by one thing that I think helps is to do form or do something that is an external thing that holds you so that you can kind of wander off within it. You know what I mean? And so so you know that you're in in a confined space. Yet you can, within that space, you can kind of wander around and take your time. I think the getting the head out of the way thing is something that poets, I mean, you know, that's an ongoing struggle. Mm -hmm. um, but one, another thing that I've done is uh, just kind of create, what's the word? Um, 
so I'll create things that I have to do rules for a poem. Like I'll say after after this many syllables, you know, I have to or I, I have to use these five words and write a 17 line poem. And if I'm feeling a little stuck, sometimes that'll break me out of things. So there's it there's something about structure that you build in that lets you let go, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think it goes back to that Ian McGilchrist and, and the Master and his Emissary, the two brain halves, and one loves structure and loves focusing on something, so you kind of like give that a little, some balls to juggle, so the yeah. other side of yourself yes. can speak, you know, and here, you gets play it with this. this is what's going on here, yeah, and then you can kind of wander around with the other one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And another hard question, too, and this will be the last question, I think, but this is from Nate Jacob, okay. who says, um, how do you uh, find that surprise in the process without looking for it, without intending it, and how does you write? How do you write through the surprise to the finish? Whew, these are hard. Um, <laughs> I mean, hard, you know, hard for us, because we, we, the way we write, I think we just kind of let it... Yeah, I kind of yeah. just do it. I mean, and, and I hate to say that, because I think that I it really is not me. It's not all me. You know what I mean? And so I, I almost hate to put that out there that way because it's, I think it's people seem like, okay, well that doesn't help me at all. (laughs) You know what I mean? But um, it does. I do think there are things you can do to encourage that. Um, And mostly it's force yourself to leap, force yourself to take those leaps. You know what I mean? And to, they bring in like for instance i'm gonna bring a goat in somewhere you know like something that's not that you're not sure how you're gonna do it or where you're gonna do it but force that a little bit and see that see where it goes um it doesn't always work you know i've i think that's another thing that people don't always see the poems that are trash are in the trash bin you know Mm -hmm. so it it doesn't always work and sometimes you just have to kind of force yourself to do it if you can do the dissociative thing <laughs> it really that really helps me that kind of zoning almost like i don't, I don't want to use the word zen but almost really like zen out mm-hmm. focus yeah well you can use i can use prayer and you can use zen that can be, <laughs> be <laughs> <right>. our bargain <laughs> that's our bargain yeah but uh but it's true i mean i think there's just um and there's a way to i guess it was a great point that you know, for me um, there's, there's a lot of poems. I sit there and I stare for an hour and I'm like, I can't get into that space. And that happened yeah. today. I was trying to write a poem. I could not get, I couldn't get there. Um, you and you know, sometimes yeah. you just sit down and you're like, Oh, I'm there. And then I think maybe the part of the problem is that first line generating yeah. the music. And sometimes the first line doesn't generate music and it's like yeah. not a beat that, you know, you can't get, you can't, can't hear the music <laughs> of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get that. And then, and then you just put it away and try again another time. I yep. mean, Yep, exactly. Well, and let's close out with one. Here. Yeah, let's close out with one last poem. Um, okay, we're going to go with Farmer. Okay. Save your sorry. Your sorry won't get me my crops in before the frost. Your sorry won't fill the propane tank. Confess me up a big old sack of free feed while you're at it. What I don't need, a man who can't outpace his sorries, who leads him around like a pack of fair-weather friends. Another man hogtied by shoulda done. I knew a man once, he plowed through each day like saris leaded his boots, each foot dragging the bodies of his regrets. His whole life was an apology. God, what did he think? It would stop him dying? He died, like we all do, with dry lips and not enough to drink. Sorry is death for no reason. Sorry is men dying everywhere except the spot where you stand and you laying yourself down in the sand. Each death deserves a life. 
It's like, I don't know, here. It's like a field. The most fertile field needs a fallow year. The man who never rests his field grows nothing but the knowledge of should have done. What should I have done? My son was just learning how to run the big plow. And if he was too young, if another year would have kept him from its blades, what should I have done? What will it help to plant again and again that field where my boy died and to harvest regret from the black soil of the past? Don't tell me you're sorry. I used to tell him when he messed up. It doesn't fix it. Don't tell me you're sorry. Just stop doing the wrong thing. Yeah, and that was Farmer, um, another poem from Flatback Sally. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. It was great. We know when you have a new book coming out, it's great it to see. It was great. Yeah, yeah. It was it's a lot great. of fun. Um, just talking to you about... Flatback about, Sally Country. Yeah, Flatback <laughs> Sally Country. You can find it at Terrapin Books. Uh, we'll, we'll mention that in a second. Uh, but thanks so much, Rachel, for being a Thank guest. You. Yeah, it's, to see I you appreciate again. you having me. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, take care. You too. Yeah, Bye-bye. it was Rachel Custer um, with Flatback Sally Country, her newest book. You can find that at terrapinbooks.com. Um, so, so check that out. Um, Terrapin Books, and that's T-E-R-R-A-P-I-N books.com for Rachel's Custer's newest book, Flatback Sally Country. We're going to take a quick break. Actually, you know what? I guess we're not going to take a quick break because uh, Jennifer's right here anyway, and we might as well just jump right into it. Um, so, Jennifer, <laughs> how Hi. are you doing? Yeah, it's great to see you too. Another uh, another returnee. Um, always love having new books out. Um, your new book is Vos. Um, if I'm saying that right, Vos? You are Vos. Vos. And, and so, so what can you tell us about this book? Well, before I say anything, I just want, I was listening to your exchange with Rachel. That was the most fascinating discussion of poetry that I've heard in, I can't even remember oh. when the last time. That was so good. Well, thanks so much. It's, yeah, it's fun. Rachel's a great yeah. poet, and and sort of um, yeah. and the reason why you know I want to talk to her is because she's a little bit of a mystery. You know, she's kind of doing her own yeah. thing off, and it's interesting to see what she thinks and how she's going about it. Yeah, yeah, it is. But yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, this is I have my book here. Oh, it it appears backwards when you show it on Zoom, but anyways. it's front ways for everyone else. I put can put it on the oh, screen too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's Vos, and uh, Vos means voice in po- Portuguese. And uh, the whole book opens with an epigraph uh, that's a um, from the lyric uh, Come Cavos, uh, a fado song, Portuguese song, sung by Amalia Rodriguez, which goes, I'm not going to sing it, but it goes, Come Cavos, Chorare, Triste Fado, which means with what voice? Will I cry my sad fate? And that's the the book answers the question. <laughs> so, what voice am I going to use to to cry out my sad fate? Yeah, it's it's a beautiful book, and I love the way uh, this new. I've never heard of a saturation, um, and I don't know how I've gone through <laughs> twenty years in poetry and never heard of a saturation. Um, did you make that up, or is that something that? Yeah, <laughs> I totally made it up. Um, well, I feel better because, now because I was like, this is so cool. But how have I never thought of this? So explain to everybody what a saturation is. You can coin it. We'll put the TM on there. Um, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I own this. Um, so I just was writing acrostics, actually. And then I noticed that I was uh, writing not just to visual stimuli, but to audio stimuli. And I just thought, okay, this has got to be something. I'm being pretty obsessive about it. I would listen to songs over and over and over and over and then write a poem, not about the song, but just kind of letting the influence happen to me. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's a word for this. I looked it up, no word. I thought, I'm a poet. (laughs) 
I'm a maestro of language, supposedly, so I should be allowed and able to uh, create a term. And so I did. I thought of a few things, but saturation made a lot of sense because I felt like I was saturating in the sound. It was like permeating my body and through my body, the poem would resonate and happen and, and occur on the page. So mm -hmm. it made sense. Yeah, it definitely does. I think it's going to catch on. So saturations. And then and, and so the book is entirely made of saturations, I think, right? Every one is a, is a saturation of some kind. I think almost all of them. Maybe there are a few that are not. Um, but I, I think the whole book, the book as a whole is is permeated with this California sound. So mm -hmm. where you are right now, not where I am, yeah. Salem, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's let's hear the, a, a poem. Uh, Against the Wind is a saturation. I, I everybody yeah. pre probably know the, is it Steve Miller band that does Against the Wind or? No, um, Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. You're, ah, you're close. That's right. So, so Bob, yeah, thing. okay. So Against the Wind, um, it's, it's almost like the, a lot of these are like the Forrest Gump soundtrack, which is one of my favorite. I had on a loop <laughs> when, I, yeah, when I came actually. out. Yeah, yeah, great music. Um, here we go with Against the Wind. Against the Wind. All horses and homeless folk go to the beach when fires rip through California Canyon. They run through surf against the wind, away from the flame of the night. When the choke smoke dies, they canter home to campfire stones, tent poles, push carts, hoof brush wire, salt, lock racks, and spoons the flats of certain spatulas. Not everything unnatural is gone. In the fortified Getty Museum, St. Martin dividing his cloak with a beggar, the piebald horse, and Van Gogh's irises are safe too. Sometimes I feel less than a work of art, like a horse awash in a wave, not a blade. Like I'm home free when the ash is thick on ground I've slept on for months. Sometimes I wait for miles of asters, blue dicks, and desert pincushions for an after-fire superbloom to feel useful, created, though I know that's as unwise as a California breeze after a decade of drought. Yeah, and that was Against the Wind, uh, one of the earlier poems in Vaux's um, Jennifer Jean's newest book. Uh, Jennifer, that quote you mentioned, uh, let me look at the quote again. How did it put it? Um, with what voice will I cry my sad fate? So much of that, you know, sad fate talking about deals with your your childhood and the difficulties of that and your, your parents' relationship. What was it like to, to get the book out, um, you know, on paper, all those stories? Was it was it a healing process for you? And, and what's the reception been like amongst your, your family? Oh, well, I mean, sadly, uh, last year, actually, maybe the past two years, my father passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Two years ago. And then right the next year, which was last year, my brother passed away. And so a lot of the poems are about them. And then my mom, she's still here. She's the other kind of main family member. And she doesn't really read my poetry. Uh -huh. So she's not, you know, I think everybody out there knows how that goes. I think even Rachel mentioned that there are people in your life that, you know, they support you like, oh, you're a poet, but they don't read your poetry, which I'm cool with because I wanted to have a bit of freedom to discuss things. Uh, so... I think if I can speak for my brother, though. He loved being written about. Even if I wrote uh -huh. like, not great things about him, even, he just thought, ooh, I'm in a poem. I thought it was cool. <laughs> that's great. I think that's a pretty rare reaction for a brother. So, 
so not yeah. bad yeah, yeah. Um, so, so was it a healing process I, I always think about poems as you know that the poems as therapy and self you know psychological healing comes from the the way that you both like like make a space for those feelings and also understand yeah. them, you know, and then you can sort of put them outside yourself and pick them up when you want to and leave them when you don't, that kind of thing happens with a poem. Did you feel like that? And was that one of the motivations for the book? It wasn't a motivation, but poetry has been part of my healing process, but I would have to say not a main part. You know, I've been in therapy. I do like all kinds of things in my life, like yoga and prayer you and Rachel again we're talking about that that's what fascinated me um you know I have a relationship with God and that that heals me and poetry is is integral is a part of it but it's just one part it's like it's more, I would say it's the public part hmm. of my healing um and I would never just lean on it that it wouldn't be enough for me it, it isn't enough in my life but it's definitely necessary like I wouldn't want it to go away um, so yeah, so what you're witnessing when you're reading or when anybody's reading these poems is that healing. And then when I'm reading aloud, that's part of it too. Because for me, the the whole writing of the poetry, part of it is the presentation, the, the oral, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, presentation by me and then the participation by the audience, you know, the feedback or just people listening, knowing people are out there listening. I like giving readings for that reason, because I feel like that give and take is part of that healing process you know we could and, and here's an obvious explanation of it is that after i read after any poet reads the poem a couple of times not a couple like maybe a lot it just it ceases to have that grip that let's say some memories have on us mm -hmm. that make us write about something specific it, a memory will have a grip i know it does on me but it'll loosen the grip will loosen and then i have that distance yeah. because i've read it aloud a lot um yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really well put. That the memories grip loosens. I think. Yeah, I think that's there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I want to ask some, some more like updates on how you're doing otherwise. But let me uh, let's do another poem first. The other poem you okay. wanted to share. Yeah, I wanted to share inspiration points, Pacific Palisades. We'd stare at horses at Will Rogers Park, then hike the loop trail to inspiration point, and I'd lag back to be a kid, alone. And under that aloofness hid vengeance, the salt dripping through chaparral brows into my brown lashes. And under that, anxiety, a rusty burr or two in my left sneaker. And under that, rage, perfectly purple shell some kid favored and lost. And under that, hope, the pounded ground, and under that, a vast clearing on the cosmos, also called Inspiration Point. A gorgeous inner hill with a curious figure taking in the Pacific view, breathing shikari and chemise, naming every wind border near Catalina Island. That high noon far-sighted figure seemed a bit burnt, but warm, a bit divine, but sometimes I didn't find that figure wowing at a thing no one had ever seen, at a new bird better than a phoenix. There's something better than a phoenix. Sometimes my hand stretched towards some nether new creation, and I was the figure who named it. Yeah, beautiful poem. I love that line. There's something better than a phoenix. The uh, the rare use of a great exclamation point in a poem. Um, Thank you. 
yeah, yeah. So those are two poems from Vos. Hopefully everybody can pick up a copy of that book. I did want to ask you about other things you're involved with. A lot of people know you as the person we interviewed for the adjuncts issue. And because um, oh, yeah. you were driving like to five different colleges teaching classes in poetry. I don't know how many years ago yeah. that was. So I was just kind of curious. What is it? Are you still doing the adjunct grind or are you like pulled away from that a little bit? Are you you found one home maybe or, or are you still driving around? Um, I am no longer in academia at all. Oh, wow. I, I yeah, I was able to secure an arts administrator position. I work at the Fine Arts Work Center. I run the 24 Pearl Street online writing program. Oh, there. Mm-hmm. And the, but what's interesting is the way I was, I think that I got the job is because I had built up all these qualifications by volunteering, by starting my own stuff, like just stuff that barely paid any money, just by filling in the spaces in my schedule when I was adjuncting. So I built, and it wasn't conscious. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'll build up this skill set, um, but I did. Uh-huh. And then finally, after many, many years, like 20 years, I did that adjunct crap. Mm-hmm. Then I was able to secure you know, this full-time. It's been a long time since I've had one full-time job. It's really weird sometimes for me. Uh-huh. How long uh, have you been doing I'm, it? Uh, two years? Uh-huh. Yeah, just about two years now. Um, so it hasn't been long. I haven't been out of the adjunct situation long. Um, yeah, and I'm really happy to be out of it, although mm-hmm. I love to teach, yeah. just to be clear about that. That I loved. Yeah, the grind I, of it, though. Better. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that, that was horrible. It's exploitive. I hope that it ends. I mean, I think, not to get jump into a whole other topic, maybe for another time, but that um, academia is changing mm-hmm. irrevocably, and I think that MFA programs are changing, and maybe uh, Low Res is on the rise, writing centers but like the one I work for are on the rise, whereas a lot of the MFA programs will start to close. Mm-hmm. That's my prediction. I'm not happy about it, but I just think yeah. that's a reality. I can definitely see that too. I think the the market's not going to support it that way um, yeah. anymore. Um, but, but you know, poetry and just writing in general is so enriching that there'll still be avenues for exploring that. Just the idea of accrediting you as some kind of like terminal degree in yes. writing, it might be a... Uh, out the door. Um, the other thing I yeah. want to ask you about is, you know, your work um, with translations and the um, Amira Amira project. Am I getting that right? Um, well, I would. Um, the Amira project was what I worked with uh, when I worked on my book Object Lesson. Mm-hmm. I worked that was a safe house for sex oh, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So right now I work with a group called Her Story Is, and that's the group that mostly fosters the uh, my opportunities for translation. Can mm-hmm. uh, kind I of say? something about a little bit about them yeah yeah please do that's yeah. why i asked i want to see what you're up to oh, with yeah. That. yeah oh okay oh yeah okay great um so it, it's a group of uh, american women working with a group of uh iraqi mostly iraqi women art and we're all artists of different kinds a lot of visual artists and we collaborate together and we come together based on what we have in common and one thing is poetry for me so i work with another poet primarily right now i've been working with a poet named hana ahmed we've been doing poem responses, translating each other's response with the help of a, a, a translator that we work with, Tamara Alati. And so the three of us are working together, passing poems back and forth. It, that's healing. Actually, you want to talk about poetry as healing. That's a very healing. I mean, today, I believe, is the anniversary of our invasion into Iraq. So this, this is a very important day. I'm glad to be even mentioning this. But I think that the arts have power to to cross boundaries and borders mm-hmm. and to heal, you know, past 
enemies of any kind, groups of enemies of any kind coming together through the arts, commonality of the arts is so powerful. So I'm really happy to be doing that. That's why I do translation. Yeah. I definitely know what you mean. Just having um, with uh, uh, Baghdad Mon Amour by Salah Alhamdani was a poem that we had translated. We found a translator for it. Um, oh. back in like 2006 or something, right? Like during the Iraq war, he'd already been exiled. And um, oh. and just doing that and getting that poem into English um, was a really cool, just a one little experience that, that felt great, but it did feel great to get that that connection across so many borders. Um, so it's really cool, the work that you're doing. Do you have any like plans on putting books together or anything like that? Yes, so Hannah and I... Um... We're still in the middle of our project. Our po- we call it a poem response project. Where do you live is the t- tentative title. We're a couple of poems in. You know, the process is, takes a long time. Mm-hmm. But our plan is to publish uh, that poem response, find it in America, and also to have some of the Iraqi visual artists that we've worked with uh, as part of our group to put their pictures in. We've got, you know, big dreams mm-hmm. <laughs> for that. And also... In addition to that separate, I, I'm co-editing and co-translating um, an anthology of Arabic women poetry mm-hmm. called other, tentatively titled Other Paths for Scheherazade. That one is still seeking a, a publisher, mm-hmm. but it's it's pretty much complete. Yeah. But we have to find the, you know, the publisher. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're doing so well. And, and congratulations on the books. Hope you come back every time any you know, have any new books or anthologies come out. Um, but it's always great talking to you, Jennifer, and great seeing you. Thanks. It's so good to see you, too. Yep. Bye. Take care. And that was Jennifer Jean with um, her newest book, Vose. And you can find more, all of Jennifer's work, at uh, her website, which is right here. Um, it's Jennifer Jean, J-E-A-N, writer.com. Jennifer Jean, writer.com. Find her website. Find her book. Vose is the most recent. I am. I particularly love um, um, her first book, um, The Fool. That, I, I love that book too. So check that out, book out as well, if you would. But but check out all of Jennifer's great work and all the things she does at her website, Jennifer Writer, or JenniferGeneWriter.com. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and finally get to open lines tonight. Um, I think it's going to be, let's see. Well, we'll see. I'll, I'll tell you how it works right now if you're new to this. If you'd like to share a poem, um, here are the instructions. If you don't want to share a poem, though, just want to sit back and read, you know, enjoy like, you know, an hour, 45 minutes or so of poetry. Um, just sit tight right where you are on the YouTube or Facebook or whatever uh, and listen. That's the best experience because you get to see the poems too. But if you would like to uh, join and share a poem, uh, email it first to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com. Email the poem so I can show it on the screen like everybody else did. And um, then go to the Zoom link, which I'm about to deploy, both on YouTube and Facebook. The Zoom links are here. I'll pin them to the top. Just join this Zoom, and when it's your turn, we'll share your poem. I think one poem each probably tonight, but we'll see how it goes um, as people start to trickle in. Here are the links. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with uh, the open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, like I said, the, uh, we're going to do open lines, the prompt for this week. Um, and you can share whatever poems you want, I should say, too. You can share poems about current events. You can share poems about uh, that have been published recently. Whatever you'd like to share, something you wrote today, anything. It doesn't have to be the prompt. But the prompt for this week was to um, write a poem in the voice of one of your ancestors. Use formal verse of some kind. And so that was the prompt. 
I had a really, you know, a lot of things came up today and I didn't get it to a good job, but I did pull out my idea for the book. There's this thing, uh, this sort of a notebook that my grandma filled with memories from childhood that she gave me when, before she passed away. Um, and she thought of it as maybe it could become some kind of a novel eventually. And I hadn't looked at it in a long time. And, um, and I thought, you know, I might look through that. And I got this little poem. I think this might be like the epigraph if I ever do stretch into like a book of poems based on the lives of these people who emigrated from Germany, fleeing World War One in the early 1900s um, that my grandma was sharing all these little anecdotes about. Um, but so this is kind of the voice. It's in, it is metered. It's tiny. Maybe it's a little epigraph to the book. Um, I just called it Pa Kurzrock Explains. That was a family. Uh, here it goes. Pa Kurzrock Explains. While I was a maker of shoes, brought all my tools on the boat. I left at the sound of the news. They'd have feet wherever I float. So maybe that could be the uh, epigraph to the book. I don't know. Or maybe we'll work on it more. That is, uh, but he did. He came over as a shoemaker, ended up being a tool and die maker for Bausch and Lomb in Rochester. And that is where my family comes. I built my grandmother's house out of a Sears Roebuck catalog um, as a different, you know, a, a industrious kind of people. Um, and yeah, it's great that my grandmother left it. I, um, I hadn't looked at it in a while and I always thought about maybe someday making that a book of some kind, because there's a lot of little stories there of the people that, that inhabited her life when she was growing up in the 19, 1910, 1920. And, uh, a lot of, a lot of for poems there. But anyway, that is my little poem. Let's see what everybody else has today. Let's go first to uh, Dick Westheimer who got here right away. Hey Dick, how you doing? Are you there? Oh, I think he froze. So we'll go next to Steve, Stephen Croft instead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Stephen. How you doing? Good. Um, I'm going to read a, uh, a news poem. Um, thinking about the Ukraine war going into the second year um, and uh, the fact that, that war itself is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, year two, Ukraine. It was last year that the shelling first disturbed the deep time of an old village, hub for farmers and beekeepers. Now tanks roll into the square again, one crushing the stone walls of a central fountain. Old coins fall with the water from its heavy treads. In the corner of the square, from the alley by the Armenian church, a shadow strides moves into the square, pacing here and there, erratically, palm to temple, this walking wound, gathering breath to force insults in growing gasps. This man whose family was killed in last year's shelling, the Polish radio says his government is winning at 10 and five daily. He thinks the war has already gone on forever, bitterly, he thinks the war has already killed him. A soldier shouts, Hohul in the language of bears, waving him closer from the height of his round iron hatch, the soldier points a pistol. This dead man loads his mouth with more insults and rushes forward into the loop of everlasting war. In the sky's drizzle on his face are tears that were once salty seas. 
And Powerful Palm, year two Ukraine. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Stephen. Did you have a sense, I mean, you, you have more of experience than any of us here probably, of, of where it's going. Do you think, is there an end on the horizon or is it going to keep escalating or, or what do you think is going to happen? Um, well, I, uh, I'm putting together a, a book of poems about nature. So for several weeks, I didn't look at Ukraine at all. Mm-hmm. And the book is blissfully free of any war poems. So then I got that together and looked at Ukraine on Friday. I actually sent the poem to Poets Respond on Friday. Um, and uh, in Europe, there's now a divide over uh, people that don't want to continue funding the war. Uh, they're afraid of Russia, which I can understand on the doorstep. And also that the many immigrants in Germany that require aid is upsetting mm-hmm. a lot of Germans. And um, so if they lose the support of Europe, that that's bad. If they keep our support, I think the war will keep going. But uh, I guess it, it, it depends in large part on, on that support. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see Russia stopping anytime soon. Yeah, it's, it's not in bad. that nature. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that poem. Um, year two, it's, a, it's a hard to imagine it's, you know, been that long already. Thanks for sharing that, right. Steve. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Take care. There was a Stephen Croft with uh, year two Ukraine. I think we have a first time caller next, Susan Bangs Monroe, or maybe Susan's been on a couple of times. Let me see. Susan, have you been here before? I've been here once before. Ah, okay. Yeah. I thought at first when I saw your name, I thought you might be new. And then I thought I recognized your face. So, yes. um, so uh, where, where are you calling from again? Uh, Evanston, Illinois. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And what do you have to share with us tonight? So I did a persona poem, uh-huh. and I have an ancestor who came in 1623 on the Anne. And I'd been thinking a lot about a persona poem where he had some kind of a revelation about the Native Americans. Just wasn't working. Couldn't happen. So this is actually a poem in the uh, voice of his wife, Rebecca, who had nine children, but not much else is known about her. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, It's called Dear Mama. Oh, Mama, I am so tired. The babies fret and weep. Edward has now been hired to divide the meadows for sheep. The babies fret and weep and another is on the way. To divide the meadows for sheep is a duty to God, they say. And another is on the way. My horse was given for our defense. It's a duty to God, they say. My garden is behind a fence. My horse was given for our defense because the Indians are nearby. My garden is behind a fence children under my watchful eye. Because the Indians are nearby, Edward is now a deputy. Children under my watchful eye, they are so dear to me. Edward is now a man of means. Dear mama, I am so tired. The children are so dear to me, but where is my place in history? Excellent poem, is that a pantoum? Yes. Yeah, excellent pantomime. That's one of the forms I'm always hesitant to to mention because I'm like, uh, is that is that or is that some other French form that I'm not thinking of? What are the rules? But yeah, beautiful pantomime. Great use of the form. Thanks for sharing that. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Susan. Um, yeah, that was um, uh, Susan Monroe with um, Dear Mama. And let's go next to back to Carla Schwartz. Hi, you can hear me now? Yep, we got you. How you doing, Carla? Okay, Carla? I'm doing well, <laughs> and thank you. And um, so my poem, uh, I felt, uh, it was, you could call it a, Oh, it's respond poem in some sense, but um, but I felt that uh, when I was reading and learning a little bit about Pat Schroeder this week, who died. Oh, she did. It, yeah, we published yeah. her, you know, regularly. If it's the same one I'm thinking of. Well, she was a she was a um, a a congresswoman. Uh, well, I and, guess it's and, a different, unless it's a congresswoman from Arkansas who also wrote poetry. No, 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 <laughs> <Okay>. no. <laughs> From from Colorado, and okay. uh, she, she once almost ran for president, and she really was um, opened a lot of gates mm. for women and families in general, and and so I I wrote this poem, uh, and I called it a a a nonit, a nonsit, I think, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> sort of like yeah, yeah, you know, it's a it's a non sonnet, so <laughs> uh, if you'd like, and um, so whatever you'd like to call it, it has a lot of sounds that that and and I hope you like it. Okay. Um, yeah, it's called Pat Schroeder was our mother. I want to be ash. I want to be doorstop. If you don't stick to your word, I'll call you Teflon. I want to be ash. I want to be doorstop. I'd be your mother and yours and yours and yours. I want to be ash. I want to be doorstop. I'm no god, but crack sunlight through your clouds. For all those who follow my footsteps, I'll stick out my neck. Make me your doorstop. Give me half a seat and think that's half a voice. I can't. I can stand and shout. Oh, you'll hear my voice. You can give me shit, but I'll say it's my choice to eat and swallow what you give and spit it on your feet. I've been wor a working woman, so clean house as I see fit. When the house burns down, ashes, ashes, I'll be in it. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. I do like the form, a nonce sonnet of some kind. Uh, interesting rhyme scheme. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. That's great. Thank you. That's one of the, the last things she said in the, the last interview that they had with her. She said, um, you know, I want to be cremated and I want to be a doorstop. <laughs> that is really, you know? That's a and great so, line. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. thank you very much. Thanks so much, Carla. That's great. Yeah. Take care. As a Carla Schwartz with Pat Schroeder was our mother. Um, I should have said already, I think we already got through, but uh, only one poem tonight per person as we have. We have a bunch of people on the lines. Um, Audrey Friedman is next, and not to be confused with Karen Marker. <laughs> Sorry about last week, Audrey. Oh, that's quite all right. <laughs> so, um, so how are you doing this week? Good. Very good. Very happy that it's Monday night and it's time for Rattlecast. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have another pantoum for us. I do. I do. It's a Malayan form, and I love it. There's a certain designated arrangement of repetition of lines, and it has an echoing mm -hmm. uh, quality. Yeah, it's like the, it. the, the second becomes the first, and the fourth becomes the third. Is that the right pattern? That's uh, why I have to look it up every time. Let me look at your poem. 
Okay. okay. I'll, I can send you. I'm correct. I'm correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> my, my grandma talks from the grave, a pantoum. I never forgave myself for giving you bad advice. Now I'll warn you if it's not too late. It is best not to hug thorny things. Never embrace the roses, alluring bloom. Now I'll warn you if it's not too late. Remember the spines of the cactus. Never embrace a rose's alluring bloom. It's the prickly that survive when all others die. Remember the spines of the cactus. Do not believe that beauty is a bomb. It's the prickly that survive when all others die. And sweet girl, I'm not talking about botany. Oh, great last line. Love that. Excellent pantoum. And the repetition works so well in it. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah that was Audrey Friedman with um, uh, My Grandma Talks from the Grave pantoum. Um, next up, we will go to David Cohen, also known as Doodle Slice, I believe. Yes, indeed. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Good, good. Nice to be here. Uh, always fun to hear the new things people are bringing. So the prompt prompted me to look at an old fragment that I had, you know, in the bin that mm -hmm. uh, I decided to, because it kind of evokes ancient ancestors and that's the feel of it but there's no form to it uh -huh. okay well that's fine as long as the problem uh, it has something, its own. we're always happy <laughs> <laughs> it's called stomp stamp secrets teach me the secret stomp dance excuse me teach me the secret stomp stamp dance passed down from the mother of vines to her third daughter majesta who passed it to her third daughter liga of the sand who passed it to her third daughter, Sanwe of the Snowy Lands. I will train you in the invocation of stony breath, as taught by my grandfathers, 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 back to the days of clay and ferns. The face of the world is old and cracked, secrets swirling in every fold and fissure. Lay your lore upon the table, an open book, a salve to rejuvenate. The age of secrets has passed. Uh, beautiful music, and that was Stomp Stamp Secrets. Doodle Slice, thanks so much for sharing that tonight. Thank you. Yep, take care. Fun. It was a Doodle Slice with Stamp Stomp Secrets. Uh, let's go to Carolyn Codd. Hello. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing tonight? Hey. Um, my poem is a prompt poem, but it's from quite a few weeks back. Uh-huh, okay. Uh and it was the thing about favorite color. And I think I mentioned before when I started to think about it, I didn't even, I never thought about having a favorite color. But I, I realized that my favorite color is blue. Oh, that's my daughter's favorite color, too. We were talking about that the yeah. other day. I didn't really realize how, how much blue has been with me all my life. Just now. <laughs> So this is what I wrote. Blue. Favorite color? Didn't know I had one. Then I looked up and saw blue. It was all around me. As a child, I already loved beautiful blue skies, even with some bright white clouds, but there was little of it where I lived. When I was old enough to choose my own bedroom color, 
I picked sky blue with a white ceiling. My blue collection had begun. Besides sky blue, I grew to like the blue of calm lakes and rivers, and later blue seas and our own blue planet. And then there are blue eyes, especially of my Siamese, sapphires, my birthstone, lapis lazuli, a lost ring, bluebirds, blue jays, blue bonnets, blue bells, and delphiniums, blue jeans, blue slacks, blue tops and blouses, blue sheets and blankets, blue pillows and towels, royal blue ceramic plates and dishes, even a blue carpet. There are some things blue I don't like, blue cheese, allergic, blue food, especially blue frosting, dark drab blues, as in Picasso's blue period, he was depressed. The blue of the blues, too dark, too sad. My most favorite blues of all, Chagall's many works featuring happy bright blues and my beautiful blue lobelia. And here am I, blue top and blue jeans, blending in with the blue. Ah, great line at the end there. I love that. Excellent poem for the blue. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carolyn. Thank you. Yep, take care. As a Carolyn Codd with blue, aptly titled. Um, let's jump ahead, because um, Attractive Fahey is here. And uh, we, I just saw on the uh, on the chat a while ago during the show that um, it's very late. It's like 2 a.m. or two, even later than that where she is. Attractive, how are you doing tonight? Are you there? Hi, hi, Tim. Thank you very much. Um, the poem I think I'm going to read, I put up to, uh, is one, it's, it's a no, it's a ballad. Uh-huh. Oh, excellent. I, so you're going to sing and play for us, right? <laughs> no, but yeah, I had a chorus, but um, the guy in the workshop, I did a workshop in the museum. And this ballad <clears throat> is based on the history of the Civil War. And this year is the centenary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the war finished into this year, about June. Um so it, it, the Banshees of Inishirin was based uh, around that war. It was the Civil War in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So families where you they fought um, the Fenian War, the Easter Rising, the Land League, the War of Independence, and they got independence from England by the four, the six counties in the north. And there was a dispute over some. One crowd went for Collins. Crowd went for the, they wanted the treaty to try and get the six counties later and the rest of the country um, was saying no to it. So families got divided. Mm-hmm. Now I'll give you in my parish there's an 800 page book and there's only two lines about the civil war. It is not talked about nothing is said. Oh, wow. So my granduncle, my grandfather fought in that war and my granduncles and my grandfather went on the Collins side and his brothers and father were on the de Valera side. So it caused huge stuff in our house. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I can imagine. Never talked about. And how it came out was, and I realized it later, I thought the Fahis were very gruff and ignorant. My mother's family were lovely because they, they had one side. And I used to think, what's wrong with them? They're so bad mannered. But it wouldn't be talked about. Nobody knew. So I did a project in the museum and I wrote five poems around my memory, which is no memory. So, you know, because it wasn't talked about. But my uncle Ted, he was in the Fianna Fáil side and I and it was it, like he was my granduncle Ted. But he went into a nursing home and I used to visit him in my late teens when I started nursing. And I call into him with um, 
a bottle of rum and he'd be telling me stories. And I, when I went to the museum, I tried to recollect this and I wrote the ballad. Now, the ballad is done in a bit of Hiberno-English. Sorry for all the explanation, but there would be no point reading it otherwise. Mm-hmm. Would you say form? And when you and um, um, Casey were talking one evening, I didn't want to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to come in and say, you know, the oldest form in Ireland is ballad. It is where we came from. You know, the sonnet is English. So... Um, I think it's really important that we have our ballads heard and we don't write them anymore because they're rhymey dimey like they're do 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 you know. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> anyway, this is from my Uncle Ted that I used to visit in a nursing home and there'd be words I jump over because that's what we did. It's kind of Hiberno English. Sorry for the explanation, no, but it might great. make me- Yeah, it's fascinating. Thanks. I'm looking forward to this. So it's old, a ballad to Grand Uncle Ted. Um, who lived 1899 to 1984. Now I knew Ted, so he had lived through all of this. I tried to dig up history from dates on our family grave to fill the gaps and narratives my grandparents didn't leave. Stories buried with your bodies are sleeping in the clay. I'm sorry now I didn't heed details and things you'd say. Back then in the 80s, you and your 80s too, my weekly visits to the nursing home to give some comfort to you. I'd bring the lump of tobacco, half an egg of rum, sit and listen for an hour or two to chat and have some fun. Hope, you'd say, then stop mid-breath when rambling, rambling about a scheme. Your cap pulled down to hide your face, the skirmish just a dream. I knew to ask a question was regarded as a sin, so I'd wait there nodding patiently, taking nothing in. I do recall the odd few lines you murmured under breath, how times are hard in those tough years and many met their death. The rolling hills of Kilraden have secrets that they hold with little chance of knowing now if the truth can ever be told. You'd plenty to say about hiding, fighting the black and tans, a Bayard in your pocket and a rifle in your hands. That night in Lissa Valley, planning an attack, the RIC were captured and naught would hold you back. Easter Sunday, 1920, Glenrock House, a pyre. The RIC evicted, the barracks set on fire. Your meeting place at Adderghoul Wall, where every move was planned, remote and buried under bushel, the local Sinn Féin Hall. Betrayers moved amongst you, but you could weed them out. The women weaving warnings was better than any shout. All the tales of killing, how brave your martyrs were. I never heard you speak one word of the terrible civil war. Three children dead and four more sons with their father fought together, tilled their fields until the treaty, pit brother against brother. Blood for blood, farm divided, four against just one. And I grew up in a Collins house, a daughter of your brother's son. You were an honest patriot a follower of Dev, a worker in your father's house who followed what he said. Oh, how you loved your country, Ted, how much you love God too. You're all buried now in the family grave, a place of peace for you. Oh, that was so beautiful. My... Yeah, that was beautiful. Thanks so much for sharing that, Attraction. That was wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. I, I feel good sharing it because it's going into the archive in UCD. That was the museum project. 
and it'd be held there for a hundred years and taken out and read. So I thought I'm reading it in Rathal if I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was excellent. Really, the story and the poem, that ballad form, the, the music of it was just beautiful to hear and a great, you know, important story too. Thanks for sharing it. And I'm so glad you could stay up so late with us tonight too to do so. I did. I had to do this. I stayed up just because I was up and I thought, oh, I'll wait up now for a while. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. And, oh, my God, I can do this. I might get to do this. So. Uh, well, thanks so much, Attraction. Yeah. Watch. Okay. Well, take care and have a good night. Thanks. Okay, that was Attractive Fahey with um, Ode Ballad to Grand Uncle Ted uh, from Ireland. Thanks so much for sharing that, Attracta. Um, let's go to um, Karen Marker next, the real Karen Marker. <laughs> I love that. And I have just loved this poetry tonight. I was afraid I'd have to follow you, Attracta, because that was really amazing. <laughs> so much beautiful music in the words of everyone tonight. And I am also reading a ancestor-based poem but it is not in formal poetry form. Well, that's for- okay. Like I say, anything that if inspires a poem, we are happy. So, <laughs> so well, who do you have? Is there any introduction needed? Yeah, or? in three verse. Um, <laughs> epigenetic, epigenetic memory. This is my long ago memory. Or maybe it wasn't mine, but my grandfather's. Did he see it happen? Did I dream he did? His father head down in the mud. It was not a bullet that killed him, but the heel of a horse, when all he ever wanted to do was help get the wheel of a wagon unstuck. Who else saw it happen? Did people scream, cry, come to carry him on a board to a doctor or direct to a morgue? To what grave did he go? At least it wasn't the forest outside of town he was brought to alive later buried in a pit. In 1890, all my grandfather Sam wanted at 13 was to get out of Vilna, leave his mother, five sisters to go to Philly with his uncles to look for a job. He didn't want to think any more about accidents, even though he later had one. At the same age as his father, Vevel, I wasn't there, but I heard the story. Remembered it was a semi that hit the car he was driving as a traveling salesman, and he survived after weeks in a coma. Now I wonder about all that trauma. When I went back to Vilna, it was called Vilnius. I didn't know where to start looking. It was July, cold with rain. All the time I worried about falling, hitting my head, the mud, how to get out. Oh, great poem. Great story. Uh, that was uh, Epigenetic Memory, Karen Marker. Thanks so much for sharing that, Karen. Um, next up, let's go to um, Stephen Smith is next. Hi, Tim. Hey, Stephen. How are you tonight? Not too bad. Great show so far. Thank you. Hope I can keep it up. Yeah, definitely. What do you got for us? Uh, just a poem. I don't do well with prompts. My brain doesn't process. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to find... Oh, there it is. I see it. Okay. So any, any introduction needed, or do you just want to jump in? Oh, let's jump in. Okay. The mechanical bull gores the lady in red. My bucket of booze sprung a leak, and the bartender is avoiding eye contact. These stools keep bumping into me without saying excuse me. The booths are much more polite. Karaoke machine spits out lyrics and Morse code, and the poor sap of the mic can't decipher them in time for the melody. If 
I had a tomato, I'd throw it, no place in particular. I mutter, Bloody Mary, three times to my reflection in the urinal handle. Drink in hand, I remember I hate Bloody Marys. They taste like watery ketchup. This one's no different than maybe I am. I am not. That's a lot of blood on the floor. My straw gasps at the bottom of the glass. A very interesting poem. The Mechanical Bill Gores, The Lady in Red. And it's funny that that comes up because I just saw, I went to Desert X, the um, the art installation down in the Coachella Valley over the weekend. And uh, there's a field of mirrors spinning and moving around. And I was like, what the heck is this? It turned out to be a herd of mechanical bulls with like mirrors riding them for some reason. Okay. So very fascinating. <laughs> but that's like two mechanical bull references for the first time in 10 years in one day. Very interesting. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Stephen. Thanks, Tim. Yep, take care. So Stephen Smith uh, with the mechanical bull gores, the lady in red. Really interesting poem. Um, next week, let's spin back to Dick Westheimer, who hopefully won't freeze this time. Hey, Did it work? Hey, Dick, it does. You're good. Don't don't just freeze and, and mess with yeah. me. <laughs> I thought you all froze, and then my and then my my um, Zoom crashed. And uh, then yeah. Break. Well, better you than me, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I I I am. I just have to tell you that interview tonight inspired so many people in the comments that probably had, were sort of dumbfounded when they got on the uh, Zoom call tonight. And, <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, Rachel's just brilliant. She's a one-of-a-kind type poet, so it's really neat to have her on again. Yeah, she, she, she um, yeah, and, and for folks who don't have the book yet, it, it's the most consistent collection of poems I think I've ever read. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, every poem is just a really good poem. It, it didn't matter what she picked to read. It was just, all, they're just all good. Yeah, for sure. It was great. Um, so I'm going cut to cut to the chase here and read. Actually, I apologize. It's, it's the longest poem I've ever submitted to you. <laughs> it's over the bar backwards. Okay. Um, and, uh, a poet's respond poem in memory of Dick Fosbury, who pioneered going over the bar backwards in the high jump. Yeah, here's a picture of Fosbury. I wanted to look up, and when I read this poem, I, I remember reading it and wanting to look up how they did it before the Fosbury flop, because I can't even imagine what they would have done. You know, here's a, for the screen for everybody watching at home. Uh, before Dick Fosbury did this in 1968 and like broke every world record, people like hurdled it. How did they jump over? Well, the uh, when I when I was on the track team, so to speak, as the poem deals with, uh, we did the forward roll. Interesting. Uh, which is you sort of rolled over the bar. Um, and it had been that way. I, I did I did the research, too, from before that. You know, there was some hurtling and scissors kicks and stuff like that. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, to date me, I was in high school as the transition was going from the forward roll to the Fosbury flop yeah that's really interesting <laughs> um so and um yeah it, it was like oh that's obvious that's exactly how you should do it except what happened to me in this poem exposes <laughs> yeah, why i call that the the sudden shifts that that happen and like we're like there's just something obvious that nobody realized there's a word for that i'm drawing a blank well, on it is it a fate? You know, there are these phase shifts, is what I think. Yeah, of. yeah. There's There's a like word for it. Or maybe I'm thinking of that book, The Swerve, a great nonfiction book about. Um, um, uh, anyway, we're going to get on a tangent, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's hear the poem. This is Over the Bar okay. <laughs> Backwards. Okay, Over the Bar Backwards, in memory of Dick Fosbury, who pioneered going over the bar backwards in the high jump. 
Oh, man, that all guys, rich kids school I went to back in the 60s was a paradise for smug faced man boys who thought shotgunning beers in plush carpet homes was how to get a party started. Not so much for my buddy H.T. and me, who to shoo those rowdy rituals in favor of dropping LSD, laying back on his farmhouse roof where we'd cross to the moon's dark side as the stars hung like lamps just out of reach. We'd groove to the dead's anthem of the sun on a repeat and ask the big questions, like what did sex have to do with love? Back at the day school, the masters, yeah, that's what we called the teachers, made us do sports after class. And by sports, they meant some titans right, where er men athletes would strut their lordship over the rest of us. Afternoons ended with us naked in the locker room with those fucking towel snappers, us getting pinched and titty twisted, while the lip-licking training staff pretended not to be looking at all the bare-ass teen demigods swinging their dicks like swords. We had dumb as pigskin coaches teaching history to the second-tier scholars like me. We had to play soccer all winter in fields muddy and rutted as battlegrounds, our feet freezing, stuffed like soggy cabbages in plastic bags that we lined our boots with in an attempt to keep dry. The masters were out to make Teddy Roosevelt men of guys like me and H.T., but we were less interested in being men than smoking weed behind the school and riffing on C.S. Lewis and H.T.'s Spider-Man brand of Christianity. And even though I had zero fear of the devil and hell, I knew evil when I saw it. And it looked like those jocks in the locker room bragging about where they jammed their cocks talking about pinning girls against the wall and jerking up their skirts. It looked like Ken Doll Kevin, who drove his daddy's Lamborghini, a predatory wasp of a kid and a car, and parked it in the teacher's lot. When spring came and it was time for us to pick a sport, neither H.T. nor me were going anywhere near a baseball we couldn't hit or catch, we chose track. And though I could run pretty fast, when they had us doing lap after lap around the cinder oval wearing our saber-toothed spiked flats, we both decided to try the high jump squad because laps weren't required. And doing those forward rolls into a foam-padded pit looked fun. I wanted to be different, so I tried to flop like that Fosbury guy and end up running a spike through my big toe, split my nail at its root, and when Holly saw that my oozing injury got me out of practice, he impaled himself on purpose, said it was as close as he got to nailing himself to a cross, and both of us kept limping around for the next two years, at least at 3 p.m. every day when sports began. Uh, then we... We would hang out in the senior lounge and play gin rummy and discuss the meaning of life, which H.T. said was to always go over the bar backwards. So no matter how fucked your day was, you were given a moment to gaze up at the sky where he saw Spidey or Jesus. And I saw the shadows of stars just beyond the blue waiting on me. Yeah, great poem and great ending, Dick. That uh, that the humor at the end, and then the great last line too. Um, beautiful story taking us back over the bar. Yeah. 
Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate yeah, always a pleasure. As a Dick Westheimer with Over the Bar Backwards and Memory of Dick Fosbury, who pioneered going over the bar backwards and the high jump. I'm definitely going to look that up because I want to watch some, some people do it the old way. Um, okay, a few more people left on the open lines. Uh, Mary Lisa Denominatius is next. So how are you doing tonight, Mary Lisa? <laughs> okay, now. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to share this poem. I'm going to make it fit the prompt. Um, I was thinking uh, a lot about metaphor. That's, I guess, where this poem comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I've was i been listening to you and Katie talk a lot um, over the past week about metaphor on Twitter um, and on Facebook and stuff. And then um, so... I'm thinking from we're made from dust and to dust we return. So this will be like my ancestor poem. I don't know. (laughs) I think that's great. Yeah, let's hear it. Good metaphor. Uh, It's called Terms of Endearment. The plant has a tongue. We say seed. It has a spine. We say stem. Its spine holds it up in the wind. Sometimes I see the wind and the stem lean against a brick wall. Their bodies pressed together like young lovers learning one another. You cannot hear the plant speak, although it does. You think, because I hear it, I should know what it knows. But I cannot decipher its song. When I try, I hear only mine. The wind that kisses the leaf might know the leaf's song. Maybe it tries to sing to me, but my ears are not made to translate that intricate music. This is the way God is explained. I am a perfect, inadequate body, unable to hear God's song beneath my own. I am too small to see entire, and my ear is far too cavernous for the flower's voice or God's to reach my inner walls. Do I doubt the flower has song? Do I doubt the wind and flower kiss? The scientists The watchers believe it's true. The seed carried on the wind's tongue kisses the dirt. And I wonder where the human fits in. If what we do is considered singing. If what our kissing leads to is considered. I watched an iris open its mouth. Purple jaw, dropped lip, a glow under sunlight. Its tongue a small mound of yellow a swirl tapping the roof. And I almost expected it to speak our same language. And then I said, oh, the iris is spoken. Oh, that's great. I love that. A side ending. In- really interesting form, Mary Lisa. And then iris keep coming up. You'll see a little <laughs> bit, another one later. Terms of endearment, uh, Mary Lisa. Uh, Dida Manishas, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much yep. for having me. Yep. Always a pleasure. Okay, and now that is going to be it for the Zoom today. Um, I think, I'm sorry that we're not going to have time to do extra poems. Um, a whole bunch of people sent poems that we could not read. Um, so sorry to Katie Dozier and uh, Nivedita, to um, um, Amadio Mendoza, um, Denny Mass sent a poem too. Sorry we can't get to those. Uh, we are already over time for the show, and so we're going to have to wrap it up now. But maybe you know, next week you can pop on. If we have, any, you know, I keep these in my inbox. If we have any time um, in future shows to read, but I do have to eat dinner at some point, so um, we're going to have to get running. The um, psycho. Actually, before we do that, I did want to share this article. Just if you haven't seen it, it's on um, litmagnews.com. 
Uh, for anybody who's worried about sharing poems on the open mic, um, I've come up with a solution um, for this and other ways of sharing poems. It's um, over at litmagnews.com or litmagnews.substack.com. Find Uncurated, The Case for a New Term of Art. And um, if we get everybody on board with this, here, I'll put it on the screen. If we can get everybody on board with this um, philosophy, then we can not worry about sharing poems on social media and on open mics and anywhere else because we will be worried about curation rather than publication, which is the goal. One of my goals for this year is to get the entire literary community to adapt this new term and talk about collecting poems together. And that is an act that's important instead of publishing, which because making public is just... Um, meaningless when you can publish I mean, my daughter started publishing things online uh when she was like eight years old so i mean how hard is it to publish something but curation is what matters so check that article out and um, adopt that philosophy if you would we're gonna be talking about that too publication and curation and all the rules and tips about publication um to um on the the poetry space on twitter so if you find us at k underscore dozier um, find the poetry space. We'll be talking about that and all the details about publication too, which people have a lot of questions about. Um, the poetry space is a is a Twitter space, which is a way to just have a discussion as a group, which is really fun to do. That's Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, so find me, Timothy Green, or uh, Katie underscore Dozier at Twitter for that. Okay, so now we're going to do the uh, Saiku really quickly. And the Saiku is based on this article, which I found interesting. Um, here we go. This is from this is from the University of California, San Francisco, and um, interesting stock photo choice. Um, smelling the cheese, <laughs> but um, this is making sense of sense. In the first molecular images of olfaction, open door to creating novel smells, which is really interesting. I think we're gonna have like a like a smell of vision is on its way possibly, but for the first time. Um, uh, we have modeled in three dimensions. You can see this really cool image here. We've modeled in three dimensions the way the binding structures of the olfactory receptors. So we can see how, and the interesting thing is that smells are a whole constellation of different chemicals that we, you know, in, in different patterns and different organizations of them, we might think something is a gross smell and then a few alterations of the whole chemical cocktail and we find it, think it's a beautiful smell. And so that is really interesting to me um, to see that modeled. And the idea eventually is that we'll understand more about smell and maybe have, you know, um, the whole bunch to do with smell. So that's really interesting. It's a sense that is often overlooked in science. And so here's my psyche. Um I was mentioning irises. We went to the Getty this week, too, or last week, and uh, saw Van Gogh's irises. And um, here is the psyche based on uh, both of those things. Van Gogh's irises, the texture of a scent in bloom. Van Gogh's irises, the texture of a scent in bloom. That is your psyche for the week, and that is the show for this week. Uh, next week's prompt in the Rattlecast, inspired by Rachel Custer. Sorry for Persona again. We had two big Persona guests in a row. This is a different kind of Persona. Um, personify a place where you've lived as if it were a character sketch of a real person. That's going to be your prompt for next week. Write another Persona poem, but this time of a place where you've lived. Um, it doesn't have to be as, you know, it can be a house, it can be the town, it can be the country, um, it can be the, you know, any kind of region. It can be anything like that, but personify that place as an actual character. That's going to be your prompt for next week, inspired by Rachel Custer's book, uh, Flatback Sally Country, which in a way does that. So see how creative you can get with that. That's next week's prompt. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be John W. Evans. Um, John W. Evans, his book, The Fight Journal, um, a chronicle of divorce and the transformation around that, is a beautiful chapbook that was published with our spring issue. He's going to join us to share poems from that. 
other work to Rattlecast number 187 uh, with the prop personify a place where you've lived as if it were a character sketch of a real person. That's next week's show, Rattlecast 187, Monday, March 27th, regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. We'll see you on Critique of the Week and maybe the Poetry Space, too. Uh, talk to you later. Goodbye.